You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Two former Stockton police officers on the other side of the law indicted today on assault charges for the alleged beating of a Stockton teen last December. Both officers will report to jail tomorrow morning. CBS 13's Laura Hayfley live at the Attorney General's office in Sacramento with the next step in this investigation. Laura. San Joaquin County DA Tori Salazar announcing the indictment of those two former Stockton police officers, but then taking it a step further, referring the case to the Department of Justice for civil rights violations. Now, that teenager involved, Devin Carter, and his family spoke earlier. They're claiming this as a small victory over the local police department. Not many people will go through police brutality or get shot by police and they survive. Nine months ago, Devin Carter begged for his life. I'm not resisting. Oh, oh, oh. Police body camera footage released by the Carter family's attorney shows the brutal beatdown of the then 17-year-old by four Stockton police officers. They will be held accountable. Family attorney John Burris commending the San Joaquin County DA for indicting two of the four officers, including Omar Villa de Pua and Michael Stiles, on charges of assault by a public officer and assault with force. It does not matter who you are, what your profession is. We must all be held accountable for our actions. The Stockton Police Officers Association released a statement Friday afternoon supporting the indicted officers, claiming they feared for their lives after the teenager led them on a car chase, writing in part, Mr. Carter drove in excess of 100 miles per hour with no headlights on, often in opposing lanes of traffic. Burris says Carter took off because he was in fear for his life. There was fear on the part of Devin when the police were pursuing him because that's the kind of fear that African-American men, myself included, will have and still have when you're on a dark road where there's no one else that can protect you and save you. Have you watched the body cam footage? I've watched it many times. I'm knowing that only two out of four were fired. It puts fear in my life knowing that I can possibly be pulled over by those two officers again. Attorney John Burris, who represented Rodney King 25 years ago, says he's confident this time around his client will see justice. There's no free beating anymore. Attorney John Burris tells us this is the most severe case of police brutality he's been a part of since he represented Rodney King 25 years ago during King's civil case. Now, those two former police officers will be booked at San Joaquin County Jail tomorrow morning and appear in court next on November 11th. Nothing has laid bare the importance of high-speed internet more than this pandemic, as so many Americans have been forced to conduct their lives online. School started an hour and five minutes ago, and we do not have internet. It's the fourth day of school for Lynn Manning-John. She's the vice principal of a Waihee Combined School that's grades K through 12. And even though she is physically back in the building this year, at least for now, 
Internet problems keep fouling up class. We don't have a way to take attendance. We don't have a way to ensure that students are in the right classes at the right moment. Um, we did have a student exhibiting uh, COVID symptoms this morning. So finding that student's data in order to reach their family is also uh, something we can't do because we don't have internet. We keep hearing from people who are experiencing problems with infrastructure across the country and how the infrastructure bill in Congress plans to address those problems. And today, we're going to zoom in on internet connectivity, specifically broadband, and how lack of broadband has made life a struggle every day on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation in northern Nevada. That's where Lynn Manning John lives. We are 90 miles in any direction from the nearest interstate. Uh, the Duck Valley Indian Reservation is the home to the Shoshone Paiute people. These are our homelands. And get this, Manny John's reservation has only one cell tower, and there's only one hardwired internet service provider. She says it doesn't even reach her house, and even if it did, it's slow and unreliable. We want fiber. We want 5G. We want the latest technologies, but we are so isolated, it's challenging to get those companies to come. Tens of millions of people across the country lack the kind of high-speed internet or broadband that they need for things like work, school, and streaming, especially in rural and tribal areas. And for Lynn Manning-John and her family, sometimes the best solution is to just get out of town. They already have to drive an hour and a half every time just to go grocery shopping. And the perk during some of those trips is that for a brief moment, they can get better internet. So we're getting to a service area and the notifications are starting to come in. We got a hotel room for the night and we will have Wi-Fi, which means that my phone gets to update. I, have, I don't think my phone's updated in over a hundred days because we don't have Wi-Fi at home. More people than we realize live like this every day. And I wanted to understand why. Why in this day and age, why are there still so many parts of the country that don't have reliable and fast internet access? Well, that uh, unfortunately, it's not the easiest question to answer. That is Catherine DeWitt, project director for the Broadband Access Initiative at the Pew Charitable Trusts. Lawmakers consulted with her and her team while crafting the infrastructure bill. It is important to remember that we are talking about a for-profit industry. So when we are looking at communities that are not densely populated, um, perhaps where income levels are lower, where providers don't see an obvious business case, it is then incumbent upon the public sector to identify opportunities to incentivize investment in those communities. But how do we incentivize investment when we don't even know how many people in this country lack broadband access? Like, seriously, the Federal Communications Commission estimates it's 14.5 million people. The White House says, no, it's 30 million. Others say, no, 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 it's 42 million people. The data is just really spotty. So if we don't know exactly how many people need functional broadband right now, how do we expect the federal government to solve this problem? Well, that is why in uh, the Infrastructure Act, um, there, or in the Infrastructure Bill, excuse me, um, there is a requirement that 
the FCC must finish updating the maps before funding may be distributed. That's an important step forward. Well, originally Democrats had said that about $100 billion would be needed to address the country's digital infrastructure. This bill has $65 billion, so not quite $100 billion. How concerned are you that the money in this bill just falls short of what's really needed to bridge the digital divide in this country? Well, this is a significant down payment on making sure that those households that are definitively unserved, um, rural and remote households, um, this is a significant down payment in making sure that they will get online. Um, those are expensive networks to build, um, and uh, they do not present an obvious business case to providers. So that's why this public intervention is needed. Um, the other advantage of this bill is its focus on data collection to better understand with a higher level of granularity who else in this country does not have access to a reliable and affordable connection. That's but where what in your we... mind is still missing from this bill? Well, the digital divide is really complicated. And so where we would like to see additional support is for state and local leaders to be able to uh, collect the data that they need in order to illustrate just how many unserved households there are in communities that are, quote unquote, served based on federal data. You have described for us that a lot of people just can't get service providers to come out to their area because their area is so remote or there are just too few people in their area to make it profitable to incentivize service providers to flood those areas. Will this bill effectively address that part of the problem? Yes, it will. Um, will it solve it? We don't know yet. Um, but will it make a significant dent? Will it make progress? Absolutely. Um, so? And not just because of the money that's going to states, there's also $1 billion for middle mile infrastructure, which will help significantly um, defray the cost of last mile connections in rural and remote communities. Last mile connections, meaning those final legs that connect a person to the internet. On so many days of her life, Lynn Manning John feels like Duck Valley Indian Reservation is not only on that last mile, it's the very last stop on that mile. Yet she has chosen to stay here. Our ancestors put us in the right spot so that when everything shuts down, we still have our beautiful land and everything we need to survive. But she acknowledges surviving in the modern age, especially during a pandemic, is almost impossible on this reservation without high-speed internet. Our isolation historically has allowed us to preserve our language and culture and traditions, and that served us. However, it doesn't serve us in the age of the internet when we need up-to-the-date, up-to-the-minute information. We need to be able to push out information and instruction. We really need something in communities like mine. And my reservation is not the only community that has this problem. Uh, there are others across the United States and we have probably one of the most challenging experiences in accessing broadband day in and day out. Father, as we wave through the water, my mind thought about the song that my old ancestors used to sing, what I was raised upon. Father, as I walked through that water, all I could say was, Lord, Waving in the water, waving in the water, God's going to trouble the water. 
Climate change is driving more severe flooding across the country, the latest example being from the northeast United States. But an NPR investigation finds the top federal housing agency is selling flood-prone homes to families without fully disclosing the risk. At the same time, the federal government is spending millions of dollars to move people out of flood zones. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team is here. Rebecca, we're talking about uh, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. What did your investigation find? Well, HUD is mainly known for subsidized rental housing, but HUD also sells homes. And we found that thousands of those homes around the country are located in flood zones. And the people who buy them generally don't get any information about flood risk until after they've decided to buy. And that raises a lot of questions about how HUD is dealing with climate change. You know, climate change has caused residential flood damage in the U.S. to skyrocket. HUD's mission is to provide safe, affordable housing. So HUD says it's important to sell these homes for low prices and make sure they don't sit vacant. But many of the housing experts we spoke with said it's very concerning that HUD would be selling homes that are prone to flooding and basically allowing families to move into harm's way. Where are these homes located? You said they were all around the U.S. Any particular hotspots? Yes. So I should say these are houses that were foreclosed on by banks and then handed over to HUD to be sold. And NPR analyzed data from 2017 to 2020. It's nearly 100,000 homes that HUD sold. And in that time, HUD sold flood-prone houses in almost every state. But there were hot spots, as you said. So Louisiana, Florida, and New Jersey all stuck out. A larger proportion of the homes that HUD sold in those states were in flood zones. Now, those states uh, are on the coast. Uh, maybe they're just maybe prone to more flooding in general? Right. We wondered that, too. But we found that HUD is selling a disproportionate number of homes in flood zones. So, for example, in Louisiana, about 20 percent of homes sold by HUD were in flood zones. That's compared to just 0.1 percent of all homes sold in that period in Louisiana. So the data really suggests that the homes HUD is selling are more prone to flooding than the general housing stock. Then what does it mean for people who end up buying these homes? Because there's a there's a affordable housing shortage happening all over the nation right now. So I got to think these homes are, are very attractive to some of these families. Yeah, absolutely. We interviewed people who bought these houses in multiple states who are basically gambling that the house won't flood while they live there. And that brings us to another question which environmental justice experts have raised. You know, is HUD doing enough to protect low-income families from the effects of climate change? You know, buying a house is a way to build generational wealth in the U.S. People put their life savings into their homes, and a flood can wipe that out. My colleague Tegan Wenland of member station WWNO visited a family in Louisiana who purchased one of these homes, and it was their dream house. Jonathan Stuman grew up in an apartment building in Baton Rouge. It was small, had no yard. He always dreamed of owning his own home. I never knew what it was like to stay in the house. So when I moved to here, you know, it, it felt like home immediately. He and his wife bought their little white house on a quiet side street in Denham Springs, Louisiana, in the spring of 2019. And they love it. It has a big backyard. That's one of the things that attracted me, too, is the backyard. Uh, Pretty nice size for the kids, and they like to have fun. Little rocking chairs with the kids' names sit on the front porch, Jaden and Jayla. They ride four-wheelers. He's building the kids a big backyard playset. He says they bought the house for $111,000 from HUD. And like many folks who purchase these homes, Stuman doesn't make a lot of money. He works overnights at a local chemical plant. Yeah, I got a good deal on it. The catch? It's in a floodplain. 
In 2016, a massive climate-driven storm flooded the house with two feet of water. It's raised up about a foot off the ground. Stuman wants to raise it higher, but needs to save enough money first. And are you worried about flooding now? No, I'm not too concerned about it. You know, if it happens, it happens. But for right now, I'm just going to enjoy my time. They have flood insurance, but they're still in a precarious situation. Just hundreds of feet away from the Amy River, which runs right through town and jumped its banks in 2016, flooding thousands of homes. The weird thing is, the state has a program to get people out of this area. It's buying out homes right near Stumans in order to prevent future flooding. I showed a map of those Louisiana HUD homes to Pat Forbes, head of the state agency that oversees those home buyouts. And as you can see, there's a lot concentrated in areas that flooded pretty bad during the 2016 floods. Wow. After every flood, the state's making tough decisions about whether certain areas are just too dangerous to live in. Hundreds of homes have been bought out to be demolished and to return the land to nature. Forbes had never heard of the HUD home program. Yeah, that's uh, that's surprising, knowing what I know about HUD's rules and how focused they are on keeping people out of harm's way. Stuman knows the risk he faces, but every time it rains, he and his family hunker down, hold their breath, and hope that the water doesn't rise too high. For NPR News, I'm Tegan Wendland in Denham Springs, Louisiana. All right, so that's the view from Louisiana, and it sounds like state officials are frustrated that HUD is selling flood-prone homes. What is HUD's response? So HUD did not respond to questions about how it works with state governments. And I should say, we heard similar frustration from officials in New Jersey and in Virginia. They were surprised and alarmed. A HUD spokesperson, Michael Burns, told NPR that the agency recognizes that climate-driven flooding is a problem for housing in general, and that, quote, Ensuring that federal agencies, including HUD, have the right tools and policies in place to increase resilience nationwide is a key priority of the Biden-Harris administration. Rebecca, what are some potential solutions? So there are a few options that housing experts and homeowners themselves mentioned. First, HUD could disclose flood risk earlier and more fully, you know, put flood risk right on the main listing page and explain how likely is it that water will enter into the house, how much water... Second, give information up front about the cost of flood insurance. It can be really pricey, and it doesn't always cover all the damage. And third, do more to make homes safe from flooding before HUD sells them. So, for example, lift foundations or automatically give grants to buyers so they can do that kind of work themselves. And HUD says it's studying the overall risks of climate change, including flooding, but didn't provide any more details. That's Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team. Rebecca, thanks. Thanks so much. This jersey that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox, it say Boston. Voters in Boston are getting ready for a major shakeup in their city's politics. Tomorrow's election and the race for mayor narrows the field to two finalists. One thing won't change. All the contenders in this nonpartisan election are left of center. But as Jeffrey Brown reports, the face of leadership looks different this year. It's part of our Race Matters series. Meet the mayor, the old one, always a white male, and for 90 years, all but one Irish. Let's make sure we get it done. But look now. Change is in the air in Boston, where the top candidates this year are all women of color who serve on the city council. Acting Mayor Kim Janey and Andrea Campbell, both black. Michelle Wu, Taiwanese-American. 
Anisa Asaibi George, daughter of Tunisian and Polish parents. Hey, Angel. To many, like Cheryl hey, Clyburn Crawford, it's a watershed moment. She grew up here and now heads Mass Vote, aimed at increasing voter participation in communities of color. At one point, we could not see ourselves. A female, a black female mayor, mm -hmm. that just wasn't in the cards. We didn't see it. As the demographics change and the city is more, um, is becoming more, you know, mixed, diverse, mm -hmm. um, people see themselves in their role, in those roles and say, I can, right? Like that role is open for me. This is a city of rich history, but part of that history involves deep racism. When I was growing up in this area, one of my childhood heroes was Bill Russell, one of the great basketball players with the Boston Celtics. He would write years later in a memoir with bitterness of his experience as a black man here, calling Boston a flea market of racism. So one question posed now, how much has the city really changed? In the 1970s busing era, overt violence. Today, continued economic disparities. A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston found the median net worth for non-immigrant black households in the metropolitan area was just $8, compared to $250,000 for whites. Boston has a quite a reputation as a racist city, it racist does. past. Is mm -hmm. it deserved? Yes, very much so. You know, I grew up here. I went to school here, I left, and I came back after 25 years. And it, yeah, in a different shape, in a different form, but it still exists. Um, and I just, I think we're working on it. I feel way? hopeful. These are the 411 kits with all the information about the different campaigns that we're working on. Crawford's group is nonpartisan and doesn't back specific candidates. But she says an election amid a pandemic gives all of them and voters a need to respond. I think with COVID last year, 2020, ripping the Band-Aid off and exposing all the inequities that exist within our communities, that we have a real opportunity to make change. Driving church, the hub of this neighborhood. The old way in Boston revolved around tight-knit neighborhood institutions like the Catholic Church. Larry DeCara learned that as a politician himself in many roles, beginning in the 1970s as a city councilor and candidate for mayor. We met him outside Blessed Sacrament, shuttered since 2004 in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood. When I arrived in Jamaica Plain, there were four Catholic churches and four Catholic schools. Today, there are two Catholic churches. Today, Jamaica Plain is a more gentrified community, new businesses mixed with old and its own Whole Foods. And many of these buildings were now occupied by young single people who aren't from here. Yeah. And they will Don't vote, have those roots. Don't have the roots, don't even know what church they're supposed to go to. Very, very different. But people don't have those roots, but they also don't have the political roots. Don't have the political roots because they don't know that Maura Hannigan's father was in the state senate and her grandfather was before him. Yeah. They just don't know those things. Yeah. In another part of the city, Dorchester's Fields Corner, immigrants, most from Vietnam, have helped revitalize a neighborhood in decline. I've seen it within just a few years after they built the same. Paul Watanabe, a political scientist at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, brought us to the Vietnamese American Community Center. And what they did is they came here and they found the rents cheap and they found an opportunity here and they really built a community here. 
This is a city, for example, that was on a decline. Up until the most recent censuses, for example, we saw the population of Boston going down, not increasing. And we've seen the growth of the city take place under one explanation, and that is immigration. Immigration is really what has added to the vibrancy of the city in, in a large degree. It helped bring it back. It helped bring it back. Well, I might send you to St. George's this time. It's up on the hill, and it's easy to have the distance. What will happen? In West Roxbury, Rachel Polliner, head of the local chapter of Progressive Massachusetts, is backing current frontrunner Michelle Wu, who happens to be originally from Chicago. But today, Polliner thinks Bostonians vote more on issues like affordable housing and homelessness due to the opioid crisis rather than old ties. We have questionnaires that go out to candidates, we interview the candidates, we have forums. Uh, and I think all of those things contribute. Uh, the political conversation is shifting over the last decade more to issues and policies and problem solving. For Paul Watanabe, there's a chance Boston itself will move from national political right. laggard to leader. If you think about northern industrial cities, most of them have had a black mayor before. And I will argue that the leadership that emerges from this election is going to be one that has, I hope, a national impact on this debate, not only about what happens in Boston, but how we get a nation that is going to look like Boston soon, a majority-minority nation that, again, has leadership that reflects that new reality. Tuesday's preliminary election will narrow the field to two, who then go head-to-head -head in November. As appears all but certain, the winner will reflect the face of change. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown in Boston. I don't want us to lose sight that Things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact. They're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Last week, a Colorado man was sentenced to 16 years in federal prison for brutally stabbing a man and nearly killing him. On its face, it might seem the kind of thing that resulted from a fight in a bar or a drug deal, the kind of story that might merit a little paragraph in a local paper. But this was something else entirely. The convicted man chose his victim, whom he did not know, for one reason only, because he's black. And he told authorities he does not like black people. It's just one example of a disturbing trend reported by the FBI recently. Hate crimes rose in 2020, their highest levels in more than a decade. And the majority, nearly 62%, were motivated by race and ethnicity. And of those, more than a third targeted African Americans. This new data also comes amid a sharp rise in reported attacks on people of Asian descent, including several horrifying attacks on elders and women. Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a statement about this saying, quote, hate crimes instill fear across entire communities and undermine the principles on which our democracy stands, unquote. We wanted to talk more about this, and we wanted to hear from someone with firsthand experience, so we called Taylor Dumpson. She is a President's Fellow at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. That's a civil rights organization here in Washington, D.C., but she was also a target of a hate crime attack, and she is with us now. Taylor Dumpson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you could just as briefly as you can, and I know it's painful to, to, to talk about, but what exactly happened? I believe this happened the day you were sworn in, or started the day you were sworn in as student body president? 
Yes, my first day in office, I became the first black woman to become student government president at American University in May 2017. And on my first day in office, a mass perpetrator hung bananas from nooses around campus in a variety of places with the letters of my predominantly black sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And it also made reference to Harambe, the gorilla that was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo in 2016. Within four days after the hate crime happened on May 1st, I was notified by the Anti-Defamation League that I was the target of a uh, troll storm by a known neo-Nazi um, on the Daily Stormer. Uh, Andrew Anglin encouraged his supporters to give me a, quote, warm welcome um, and encouraged them to cyber harass me um, by providing a link to my Facebook page, the AUSG Twitter page, um, and social media. <laughs> Forgive me, this may seem like a, a banal question, but when something like that happens to you, like, how does it make you feel? I mean, does it feel like you can't walk around openly? Does it mean like you dread it every time you open your laptop or that you feel like you have to look over your shoulder all the time? Like, how does it make you feel when a person's targeted like in that way? Um, I had to take increased um, safety precautions, installed cameras in the places that I lived, made sure that when I went away to law school, that I kept my location um, under wraps so that I made sure that my classmates wouldn't be targeted as well. It left me with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Um, it made me lose 20% of my body weight. I mean, I lost 20 pounds, 15% of my body weight at the time. So I dropped from about 125 pounds to about 105 pounds um, within six months of the hate crime. And it really um, impacted just my ability to express myself as a young woman, somebody who was on a very active student campus um, and engage on you know, everyday topics. I was noting in the data that so many of these attacks were targeted toward African-Americans. And I wonder if you think that people know that, that that I would say a plurality, a significant percentage were directed toward African-Americans. And I wonder if you think people know that. I think people hear about racism and I think they hear about bias related incidents, but I don't really think that they they make it personal. So I don't think that a lot of people know that there were a rise in anti-black hate crimes, um, particularly in the wake of the George Floyd murder and protests. I don't think that people realize the impact that anti-Asian American hate crimes have had, particularly in the wake of rhetoric that was used um, around the COVID pandemic. I think that people don't really understand the vast impact of hate crimes and really what's going on in their communities. You, along with your lawyers, arrived at a novel settlement in, in your case. You demanded an, and got an apology from him. Could you talk a little bit more about what the settlement was in your case and why you think it's important? Yes. So um, I was thinking about uh, my own experiences as a student advocate um, and thinking about the importance of education um, and the importance of restorative justice. This is something I had been exposed to um, in my activism and in the studies that I was doing. And so I wondered if we could use this as a teaching opportunity, perhaps. And so um, one of the defendants was, in my opinion, too young to be a new Nazi for the rest of his life. Um, we were both fairly young in age, and I, I wanted to be able to give him a second chance. He happened to be the only defendant in the case that actually responded. So that, you know, led me to be a little bit more interested in, in working with him. But he had to commit to doing a education on race and gender studies. He had to do over 200 hours of community service with racial justice organizations. Um, he had to commit to doing counseling um, and to be able to talk to somebody about these kinds of things. 
And he also had to do a face-to-face apology, basically renouncing racism and bigotry and had to look me in my eyes and understand that it's not just words over the internet, that you had a real impact on a real human being. I think you would prefer not to have gone through this to begin with. Right. I mean, absolutely. And and so do you have any sense of what might intervene in these these kinds of things so that we're not coming back year after year having this conversation, seeing these numbers continue to go up? I think it really um, calls for education, um, education at all levels, um, particularly with youth and understanding and appreciating the diversity um, and and difference between people. And I think that we interact differently when we're more culturally aware. I think that we, you know, we communicate with people differently when we're coming from a place of cultural competence. And so I think that uh, cultural competence really is the key um, to getting to a point where we don't even have to be discussing hate crimes, because one day I hope they don't even have to happen. That was Taylor Thompson. She's President's Fellow at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. White supremacy is the sickness. It was not the only thing that was discussed at last night's county council meeting. We learned the outcome of a controversy you might remember surrounding the county health director, Dr. Faisal Khan. In July, Dr. Khan admitted right here that he lost his cool and We have blurred it, but he does admit that he flipped off several members of the public following a heated meeting over masks. So last night, Dr. Sam Page revealed that he did verbally reprimand Dr. Khan over this. It's well established that Dr. Khan was treated poorly and he felt unsafe. I did verbally reprimand Dr. Khan for the gesture that he used um, out of uh, fear and frustration. Councilman Tim Fitch pressed Dr. Page on the apparent lies that Dr. Khan made in a letter sent to the council saying he was sorry for his actions. Dr. Page refused to address those concerns, saying it was a personal matter. On Saturday, a reckless driver in Brooklyn allegedly ran a red light and collided with another car. Both vehicles careened into three pedestrians, a 33-year-old woman, a 36-year-old man, and a three-month-old baby being pushed in a stroller by her mom on the sidewalk, who was killed. The driver reportedly had dozens of traffic violations to his name. Street safety advocates took to City Hall after the crash, lining up a row of all-white ghost strollers to symbolize children killed by drivers. You may have seen those white ghost bikes around the city. Advocates are blaming Mayor de Blasio for not implementing the Reckless Drivers Accountability Act, a law passed in 2020 that has not been put in effect yet. They say it may have gotten this driver off the streets earlier. Joining me now to discuss that law and what's behind the delay is my colleague, Stephen Nesson, transportation reporter for WNYC and Gothamist. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Hi, Bridget. Uh, Before we get into the law, can you break down some of the most recent stats on pedestrian and cyclist fatalities? Uh, Sure. And just one quick correction to the introduction. You did a phenomenal job. I just wanted to add that the driver, I don't know if he was running a red light, the reported driver, uh, but he was going the wrong way uh, on the, yeah. it was a one-way street. He was going the wrong way when the collision uh, took place. And it, Thank I, you for that. I think that's, 
you know, it adds a little bit more drama to it and Absolutely. Uh, horror to the situation, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, the traffic stats this year, the, uh, the pedestrian and cyclist fatalities uh, are quite bad. Um, you know, to date, it's at least 189 people have been killed. Um, and that's pedestrians, cyclists. Uh, and that comparing that to the same time last year, there were only 150, which is also bad. I mean, 2020 was the worst year since Mayor de Blasio took office and launched Vision Zero. Uh, it was the worst year for traffic fatalities. And this year looks like on pace to be even worse. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of you know, thoughts about why this is happening. Uh, the pandemic certainly played a role. I think uh, a lot of drivers got used to having somewhat emptier streets so they could drive faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, there have been uh, more deaths as well. But there's a, you know, a slew of other reasons that people are blaming this, uh, as well as an increase in driving uh, due also perhaps to the pandemic. Sure. Um, we mentioned the Reckless Drivers Accountability Act. It was passed by the city council in February of 2020. Uh, right. Can you remind listeners what's in that law? Yes. So it passed in 2020. And then again, due to the pandemic, the mayor didn't actually put funding uh, mm. in the budget for the program. So it was essentially put on ice. Uh, it was passed, but there was no money for it to be implemented. And then this year, uh, they did put money into the program. Uh, and you want to know what is this program? What is it? The Reckless Drivers Accountability. Yeah. Um, uh, it would uh, essentially the goal is to take the most reckless drivers off the road. Um, originally, it was going to be for drivers if they got five or more speeding tickets or uh, five or more um, red light violations. They would have mm-hmm. to do a driver safety class, like a training class about reckless driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they completed it, they could go back to driving reportedly. But uh, but if they don't complete the class, then they could risk having their vehicle impounded. You know, the way the traffic lights work is, you know, it takes a picture of the license plate. It doesn't take a picture of who's driving. So, um, you know, it could be, you know, your mom's driving the car recklessly. The car, whoever the owner of the car is, would would be held responsible for whatever happened in that vehicle. Um, it's currently at uh 15 speeding violations or five red light tickets would get you uh, force you to have to take this program. But the issue here that everyone's sort of raising their hackles about and really, you know, incredulous about is this program hasn't even started yet. It did get the funding in June, uh, but it hasn't gone into effect yet. And it Mm. took the death of this three month old for people to suddenly sort of wake up and realize, hey, where is this program? And even Brad Lander, who sponsored the bill, uh, said this week, I have no idea why it's not in effect right now. Wow. And Mayor de Blasio uh, has been asked repeatedly this week, why isn't the program in effect right now? Uh, and he says he's not sure. Uh, I'll have to get back to you. I need to check on that. And the head of the DOT sent a message last night that said um, it's going to be in effect soon this fall. Uh, but that's still we don't really have a, a, a date when the so-called most reckless drivers would be getting uh, a notice that they have to take this class. So we the answer to when it will go in effect is soon this fall. Um, And just one point that I think is worth clarifying, if a driver when this program actually does take effect, if a driver has had their car seized, but then takes this class, how do they do they get their car back? I believe they could get their car back if they take the class, if they complete the, the training program. 
so, you know, a lot of the conversation we're hearing in terms of the how this could have potentially prevented this, you know, just abs- awful tragedy of the three month old Steph, you know, assuming the program was in effect and this person hadn't taken their course, this car would potentially have been impounded. Um, Stephen, as I mentioned at the top of the segment, you know, the the death of this uh, three-month-old baby who was killed by a driver in Clinton Hill, for, uh, Fort Greene in Brooklyn. You wrote that the driver reportedly had over 90 speeding tickets, and the New York Post reports that he had traffic offenses that included running red lights 14 times since 2017, including five times this year. Cameras caught the car speeding in school zones 35 times in 2021 alone, including seven since the start of the summer. Are there no laws currently in place <laughs> that could have taken a driver like this off the road sooner? Well, uh, just to add to, to that, uh, Juliana Cuba from Streets Blog also reported that, uh, you know, she found that the driver's license was actually suspended uh, back mm. in April for not paying various summonses. So, uh, so yes, I think it seems like, you know, having a suspended license alone would disqualify you from driving on the road. Uh, reportedly also the driver had Pennsylvania license plates. Uh, it's unclear if this is a New York resident, but, uh, I believe that, you know, this is another way that people, you know, evade the law by registering, uh, their, their vehicles out of state to avoid insurance fees. Um, again, you know, all these things could be cracked down on. But it's right. a matter of enforcement. Uh, I know Eric Adams, the you know presumptive you know Democratic nominee, presumptive mayor, possibly uh, wants to crack down on it. Uh, he wants more enforcement from the NYPD. The uh, you know the NYPD does have the authority to you know issue traffic uh, summonses, but uh, that's down. Uh, other people have said you know there should just be more you know more ticketing, and then at some point. <laughs> You know, if this uh, if this bill goes, the reckless driving bill goes into effect, you know, this person would have to pay the consequences for that steep number of tickets. I mentioned the speeding tickets in school zones, Stephen, and they're part of the city's automated enforcement system. But for listeners who aren't familiar, can you just explain how that works? Sure. So uh, it took a Herculean effort just to get speed cameras installed in the city because it's up to the state to actually approve this sort of thing. And uh, it took a lot of push and pull for years. But finally, there are uh, cameras in like within a short radius of schools. Uh, But due to state law and due to, you know, the pushback from certain constituents and constituencies, um, the cameras are only turned on during the school day. Uh, They're actually turned off when school is not in session. Uh, and that's something advocates uh, are are screaming about and yelling and calling for Albany to let the city let the city control our own speed camera lights, uh, mm-hmm. our speed camera, um, you know, times Absolutely. so that they could be turned on 24 hours. Um, but they issue a ticket um, and, um, you know, and, and another thing that advocates are calling for that they think would help, you know, prevent these sorts of things, although this sort of crash seems beyond horrific, but. Uh, They want to lower the speed limit further in the city. And again, that's something that only the state can approve. Uh, But there is a bill pending in Albany that would allow the city to control its own speed limits. And they want to lower it to 20 in some places. It's currently 25. Um, Milan Harmlum, welcome to WNYC. Hi, um, thank you for taking my phone call. Uh, I love your program and listen almost every day. 
I am not a driver, but I am a pedestrian, and being, I've been a subject for so many years, crossing the street in Harlem uh, by the speed racing cars and the uh, illegal motorcycles. I filed complaint to 311, and it was escalated to 911 many times. It never has been done. You, every day you cross the street on 125th Street or 124th Street, and your heart started beating, and you're afraid that they're never going to stop. They take in the light, and I'm very polite pedestrian. I grew up different. I respect drivers, but res- drivers in Harlem do not respect pedestrians. They drive on a sidewalk, which is totally illegal. They drive in the Morningside Park through the uh, Morningside Park where kids, dogs, cats walking, and it's mm. nothing has been done in five years. Mila, thank you. Um, thank you for your call and for describing that. It's, you know, these are ultimately they, they become real quality of life issues, Stephen. Philadelphia reaches a multi-million dollar settlement with a mother who was pulled from her SUV and beaten by police in front of her young son. Happened last year in the hours after the police killing of Walter Wallace in West Philadelphia. Eyewitness News reporter Jan Carabello is live in our news center with the details. Good morning, Jan. Jim, good morning. Attorneys say this $2 million settlement is historic, the city's largest for a non-deadly police brutality case. But the family impacted here says this is about more than money. It's about accountability and meaningful change. Now, this incident goes back to October of last year during civil unrest following the deadly police shooting of Walter Wallace Jr. in West Philly. Rakia Young was just driving with her two-year-old son and 16-year-old nephew at the time. She tried to get through the chaos that was unfolding there in the street, but her SUV got caught in the middle. That's when her lawyers say responding police yanked Young and her nephew from the vehicle and beat them. Young was arrested and released the next morning. Now, almost a year later, police tell us two officers have been fired as a result of this incident, and 14 others are awaiting disciplinary hearings. Meantime, Young says her son is still traumatized by what police did that day. Violently yanked Ms. Young and her nephew from the vehicle and physically beat her and him. Aggravated assault, recklessly endangering another person, simple assault. Um, this, this was nothing more than a, an attack uh, that would be perpetrated by any random street thug. I hope that the officers responsible will never have the chance to do something like this to another person. And take a look at this. You may rem- remember this photo as well. It went viral following this incident, showing a police officer holding Young's child. The picture was posted by the National Fraternal Order of Police, and the caption claimed that Young's son was found by officers wandering around barefoot, lost in an area of complete lawlessness. Now, that post has since been deleted, but Young is now suing the NFOP. Her lawyers are also asking the district attorney to file charges against every officer that was involved that day. Eyewitness News has reached out to the district attorney's office. They would not confirm or comment on any potential criminal investigation. We'll keep you up to date. For now, we're live in the News Center. Jan Carabao, CBS3, Eyewitness News. Back into you. All right, Jan, thank you for that.
If you're going to recruit the great black athlete, Stan Boney. And I'm Alexis Walters. The Farrell School Board this evening took under advisement, but did not act on a request to remove the name of a legendary basketball coach from the high school gymnasium. The coach was the late Ed McCluskey. The board was told of how McCluskey allegedly beat and berated players, and they should not be honoring this kind of man. The effort to erase a legacy. It is our top story at 10. About 40 people attended this evening's Farrell School Board meeting to discuss removing visible legacies of former head basketball coach Ed McCluskey, like the name attached to the school's gymnasium and the shrine in his honor in the adjoining lobby. Coach McCluskey was a great guy, as far as X's and O's concerned, but in my opinion, he was a very, very poor human being. Brian Sanders Sr., a 1977 Farrell graduate who played for McCluskey, led the effort. Ed McCluskey coached Farrell for 29 years, from 1948 to 1977, winning seven state championships. But Sanders cited incidents where McCluskey hit players in the head with clipboards and used the N-word. Sanders said it was brought up now because former Sharon Herald sports editor Jim Rakey wants McCluskey in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. I told Rakey, leave this alone. You opened up old wounds. There's guys still hurt like my cousin. Sanders' cousin was Richard Chambers, and he had his own Ed McCluskey story. Just, you sit there and beat me, kick me. Then he had a death shit and sit there and tell kind of man to sit there and tell a kid, your mama and daddy don't want you. Man, that's what he did to me. He degraded me. But let me tell you, if we don't do something about this now, we run the risk of normalizing abuse. We run the risk of not people having a voice and kids and other people coming forward about a, uh, abuse that has happened to them. No one spoke in favor of Coach McCluskey, though school board president Terry Harrison said they have heard from McCluskey supporters. As a board, we're not just getting your side. Yes, sir. We're getting other sides of, of this coin as well. Yes, sir. In the end, the lawyer for the Farrell School Board cited a new state law that requires all resolutions being voted on to be made public at least 24 hours beforehand. Board President Terry Harrison said the board will look at it and bring it up again at its October meeting. To Georgia now. That's where the U.S. Justice Department is opening an investigation into Georgia's state prison system because of possible civil rights violations. Officials say staff shortages are leading to violence and sexual abuse, as Lisa Hagan from member station WABE reports. The Justice Department says it'll focus on both violence inmates face from other inmates, as well as sexual abuse directed at gay and trans prisoners. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark is with DOJ's Civil Rights Division. In 2020, at least 26 people died in Georgia prisons by confirmed or suspected homicide. There have been a reported 18 homicides so far in 2021. She says her office has also seen countless reports of stabbings and assaults. In previous years, Georgia had built a reputation for leading the way in prison reforms in the South. The Justice Department's investigation now comes as some facilities are experiencing what Clark calls devastating staffing shortages. It can lead to inadequate supervision and violence. It can also prevent people from being able to access necessary medical and mental health care. 
In a lawsuit filed last week by the Southern Center for Human Rights, it's alleged correctional officer vacancies are higher than 70 percent in one Georgia prison. Inmates there say special isolation cells are unsanitary, vermin-infested, and often unmonitored. Here's acting U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Peter Leary. Our criminal justice system must allow wrongdoers to serve their sentences in a safe and civilized environment. In fact, that's a constitutional guarantee. Assistant Attorney General Clark says the Justice Department began an investigation into Georgia prisons in 2016. She couldn't comment on its status, and there have been no public updates on the Civil Rights Division's work until now. Georgia's Department of Corrections says it's cooperated with the Justice Department and denies it's violated prisoners' civil rights. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Hagan in Atlanta. The Watcher. The Watcher. The Watcher. The Watcher. Police officers spend a lot of time interviewing people at the scene of a crime or maybe a car accident. They get your name, your phone number to follow up, maybe some identifying information like your height, your eye color. Officers with the L.A. Police Department also ask for your Instagram handle. Documents obtained by the Brennan Center for Justice show that L.A. cops are instructed to collect social media data on every civilian they stop, regardless of if you're arrested or even accused of a crime. And that's raising big concerns about civil liberties and mass surveillance. Sam Levin is a reporter at The Guardian, where he covers the LAPD. Hey, Sam. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, you know, so officers, this is, this is such an interesting story. Officers collect information on what are called field interview cards, and you actually have a picture of one of these cards in your web story. What, what did the Brennan Center find out was on those cards? So the Brennan Center found out that there was a section on the field interview cards in which officers ask for social media information, such as Instagram handle, Facebook, Twitter, etc. The Brennan Center also did a search of police departments across the country and was unable to find a single other police department that had this requirement on these cards, which are pretty you know, standard practice used in everyday policing. And so the the finding of social media information on those cards has raised significant civil liberties questions and just basic questions about why the LAPD is routinely collecting this information in the first place. Do you have to answer that question? I mean, is it one of those things where if you don't, they can arrest you? So there's not specific law about whether you have to provide your social media information to police. But like in many instances and interactions with police, obviously, you have a right to remain silent. And, you know, if you're not under arrest um, or, or being detained, you know, you have a right to, to ask the officer if you can leave and, and to not give information. And so you always have that right to remain silent. Of course, it depends on the specific circumstances, you know, why you're interacting with police in the first place. But there's no specific law requiring you to give your social media information to police. I mentioned the Brennan Center. Why was it requesting this information from LAPD in the first place? I mean, was there a suspicion that they were they were collecting and tracking social media accounts? So the Brennan Center has done a lot of work scrutinizing police departments over social media monitoring and um, just surveillance more broadly. And so they had done a sort of broad request for information related to LAPD and how it was monitoring people's social media. Um, so they weren't specifically looking for this issue with field interview cards, um, but that came up through the, the records request and was one of the more sort of shocking findings from 
the many uh, emails and internal records they obtained. There's also a line that I saw for for a person's social security number, which which got me thinking, you know, don't sanctuary laws prevent police officers from asking civilians their immigration status? Someone who is who is not here legally doesn't have a social security number, right? Yeah, so that was just another finding that the Brennan Center kind of stumbled on. And um, they saw that these cards request social security information, which, as you say, appears to violate the spirit of the sanctuary laws at the very least, you know, which say that police specifically are not supposed to ask people about their immigration status. And in many ways, asking for a social security number can be a proxy for immigration status since, you know, there are undocumented folks who don't have social security numbers. And so that raised huge alarms for civil rights leaders here in L.A., Um, When we reported on that, because, you know, L.A. specifically has taken a number of steps to have strong sanctuary laws, and even LAPD has taken steps in the past that are meant to reduce the perception that they might be collaborating with immigration enforcement. And so this uh, inclusion here on the card would seem to suggest the opposite. And what was more troubling was that it also included a bizarre disclaimer on the card that officers were supposed to read, suggesting that people are required to provide their social security number under federal law. Um, And experts I talked to said that that does not appear to be true. There is no law that says, you know, state or local police um, can ask you for your social security number and you have to provide it. You interview, Sam, several activist groups in your piece, including Black Lives Matter LA, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, as well as law and justice experts. I mean, what, what, what's been the reaction to, to what you guys have found and what the Brennan Center has found? So activists have always suspected that police were monitoring their social media activity. And, and you know, there's tons of records to suggest that LAPD has closely monitored Black Lives Matter and other, you know, civil rights groups that, um, you know, protest police brutality. I think many of them were surprised and, and disturbed to learn that there appeared to be this sort of widespread collection of social media data from just everyday interactions with police. And that seemed to be a kind of potential surveillance that was on a scale that, you know, these activists had not imagined. The LAPD came out with a response last week saying that people communicate through social media now just as much as they do through, you know, their phones or texts or emails. So so are they saying, Sam, that they collect social media information as another way to get in touch with that person, that it's not a way to, to monitor them? So that has been their public response to our reporting, essentially saying that this is just another form of how we get in touch with people, um, just like a phone number, et cetera. However, we've seen from the internal messages that they've um, been, uh, you know, communicating on the field interview cards and specific to social media that there's been a different message. You know, we've seen, you know, a couple of years ago, the previous police chief, you know, said that the police department was adding social media because this can be important, you know, information now and is a, is a marker of someone's identity. And we saw, you know, more recently, the, the current police chief last year, not specific to the social media, but reminded all staff that they must fill out all the information on the card as as thoroughly and fully as possible, specifically because it's useful in arrests and prosecution and investigations. And so there are many reasons to believe that, you know, this is not just being used as, as a way to get in touch with folks, but that, you know, this could be used for future investigations and for, you know, potential arrests and prosecution. Also curious is the fact that, that, that they told you that the field interview card policy was being updated. Those were their words 
but they didn't they didn't tell you what the the details of that update would be. I mean, have you heard anything more about what they mean by that updated? Yes. So I have asked them repeatedly for follow up information on that. And they have confirmed to me that the policy is still being updated and have provided no additional detail of how it is being updated. And, you know, we've been asking the, the LAPD about this policy for, you know, a few weeks now um, since I first started reporting on this and, and reviewing the documents that Brennan Center uh, obtained. And so um, it's unclear what the changes might be, but I'm certainly keeping an eye on it and, and plan to report on it when there is an update. Yeah, we're keeping an eye on it as well. Sam Levin, who covers the L.A. Police Department for the Guardian newspaper. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. This evening at the White House, President Biden, joined by the prime ministers of the United Kingdom and Australia, announced a new partnership in the Indo-Pacific region. Chief among the announcements, an effort to build nuclear-powered submarines for Australia. The one issue not mentioned by the three leaders, but clearly driving this move, a rising China. Our foreign affairs correspondent, Nick Schifrin, is here with me now with more. And Nick, tell us what it was that the president and the two prime ministers announced. Yeah, so this was what they called a landmark defense and security partnership known as AUKUS, Australia, UK, US. This is about sharing technology, sharing defense industries, and cooperating militarily. Uh, they talked about defending shared interests. But as you just said, they didn't mention China. But this is about defending shared interests against a rising China. Take a listen to President Biden and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who appeared at the White House virtually. Our nations will update and enhance our shared ability to take on the threats of the 21st century, just as we did in the 20th century, together. Our nations and our brave fighting forces have stood shoulder to shoulder for literally more than 100 years. Through the trench fighting in World War I, the island hopping in World War II during the frigid winters in Korea, and the scorching heat of the Persian Gulf. AUKUS, a partnership where our technology, our scientists, our industry, our defence forces are all working together to deliver a safer and more secure region that ultimately benefits all. This is a giant strategic step for Australia, Judy. Uh, I asked Alan Tidwell, who directs the Centre for Australian New Zealand Pacific Studies uh, at Georgetown, how significant this was for Australia to decide this. Uh, and he said it was the most important uh, announcement, mo most important decision that Australia has made uh, since the early 50s, uh, since the Australia-New Zealand-US Treaty. This is a significant upgrading of the alliance between the United States and Australia and a significant statement about the role that uh, Australia envisions for itself and the United States in the region. And increasingly, that role is a united one, Judy. Uh, the U.S. and Australia against China. For Australia, uh, the U.S. becomes closer to them, and the, the alliance with the U.S. becomes more resilient. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, gets an ally that is much more capable of deterring China on its own. So how is the United States doing that militarily? This is the premier announcement today, what you said, nuclear-powered, conventionally armed submarines for Australia. Uh, this is some of the U.S.'s most trusted, most secret 
technology. The U.S. has historically refused to provide this technology to anyone, including its partners. In fact, the only time the U.S. has ever shared this technology was with the U.K. more than 70 years ago. Australia currently has diesel-electric submarines, so it's a big investment for them to switch to nuclear submarines. And those nuclear submarines, nuclear power submarines, will allow them to deploy farther, deploy more stealthily, stay in strategically important areas uh, like the South China Sea, like Southeast Asia, even as far as Taiwan, that China has been uh, using territorial claims throughout that region, as Tidwell said again to me. And so it could be that one day China decides that it wants to curtail the transshipment of, of uh, Australian ships or other vessels through that region. And Australia has to protect those vessels. And so what better way to do it than with a submarine? And uh, so I think that, you know, it is, it's based upon, in part, Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. And uh, they have created a problem that is really leaving Australia with very few choices about how it proceeds in the future. And China has not only expanded its claims in, in the South China Sea, it's tried to punish Australia for steps it's taken. One, to block Chinese 5G from coming into Australia, and two, calling for uh, simply a, an investigation into the origins uh, of COVID. China is Australia's number one trading partner, Judy, and yet today is clearly a sign that Australia is deciding strategically that the future is with the U.S. to counter China. And as you say, this is a big move that's happening. Uh, what do the people you talk to say they expect China to do in response? They're not going to respond well. Uh, this will only reinforce uh, what China already believes is happening, which is the U.S. is trying to contain China using what China calls gangs, uh, as in the U.S. and its partners are ganging up uh, on China. But the Chinese experts I spoke to actually today said they pointed out that, look, the Chinese-Australia relationship is already bad. Uh, China's wrath may actually be pointed to London. Uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Boris Johnson was part of this announcement. China has not punished London economically yet. Uh, but even though the experts say uh, that this is a response to Chinese behavior, that the U.S. and Australia are creating this greater military alliance in order to counter Chinese behavior, there is no sign that China has any intention of changing its own behavior. Significant developments in Nick Schiffrin reporting on all that. And meantime, our Yamish Alcindor was at the White House in the room where the president spoke, and she joins me now. So, Yamish, how does this announcement, this set of steps, fit in with all the other international challenges the president's facing right now, in particular Afghanistan? Well, the president, of course, is facing a number of challenges on the foreign and domestic front. In the room, the president really had this spirit of optimism, this idea that this new agreement was going to be him turning the page a bit and really focusing on what he wants to talk about, which is really working with U.S. allies, as well as, even though he didn't mention China, as Nick just said, also really focusing on how to compete better with China. That said, Afghanistan didn't come up, but there were questions shouted, including from myself and other reporters, as President Biden walked away without taking questions. So that tells you that while the president wants to talk about this new agreement with the U.K. and Australia, chief among people's minds is still on the issue of Afghanistan and the withdrawal and the chaos and the people we left behind. Another note is on the domestic front, the president also sat down with two senators who Democrats are eyeing very closely. And those senators, of course, are Senator Manchin, as well as Senator Sinema. Senator Manchin, of course, being from West Virginia, Sinema being from Arizona. These are two Repub these are two Democratic senators who Democrats really want to try to get on board on this record bill. It's sort of what they have been calling a human infrastructure package. It's a $3.5 trillion 
billion dollar deal. The president really trying to get them on board. So we'll have to see what happens there. The other thing that the White House tells me is that they're very focused on COVID and talking about that. So this really shows you that the White House does not want to be talking about Afghanistan right now, but it's still, of course, top of mind. A lot on the president's plate today. Yamish Alcindor reporting from the White House. Thank you, Yamish. Thanks. Come here, Susie. You remember me? Your daddy's friend, Henry? I... I... No, don't! This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Larry Nassar, the former Olympics team doctor convicted of multiple cases of sexual assault, is currently serving up to 175 years in prison. Today in Washington, a Senate hearing made it clear that there are still many outstanding questions about how the FBI handled their investigation of that abuse. It disgusts me that we are still fighting for the most basic answers and accountability over six years later. That is Ali Raisman, who, along with three other Olympic team USA gymnasts, Simone Biles, Maggie Nichols, and Michaela Maroney, told the Senate Judiciary Committee that the FBI mishandled its investigation of Larry Nassar. Here is Simone Biles. To be clear. Sorry. Take your time. To be clear, I blame Larry Nassar, and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. Michaela Maroney said the FBI did not report her abuse for 14 months and falsified her testimony when they did. Let's be honest. By not taking immediate action from my report, they allowed a child molester to go free for more than a year. And this inaction directly allowed Nassar's abuse to continue. What is the point of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer? Joining us to talk about the hearing and the athlete's testimony is John Manley. He's an attorney representing the women who spoke today. And also joining us is U.S. gymnast Jessica Howard. Thank you both for being here. I know it's been a really tough day. Thank you for having us. Jessica, I want to start with you. You know, as we mentioned, Larry Nassar is in prison. He almost certainly will never get out. But for you and the women who testified today, this is not at all over. Why do you think it is important to pursue this question of the FBI's failures here? <laughs> you know what? It's been wild. And um, I, even today, have run through the gamut of emotions that I've felt over the last four years. Um, but... I think what has been underscored today and what was spoken about by the senators and what was spoken about by anybody who's read the report is that um, this isn't just Larry Nassar. This is a systemic problem that affects government-run organizations, the U.S. Olympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, all the organizations, and now the FBI. There is no excuse. People talk about mishandling. This is the opposite of mishandling. This is dead failure. Like, I, there's just no excuse. Yeah. Well, both Simone Biles and Michaela Maroney, they were very clear today that they do not trust the system. And I'm, I'm wondering, what about you? Do you ultimately trust the system? How do you feel? 
You know, I don't. Um, that's one of the difficult things that I've had to deal with personally as well, and I'd, I'm sure they're on their recovery journeys, and uh, they were so powerful today that, I mean, I just, I can't imagine anybody not being affected after hearing their testimonies. But um, no, why would I believe in any? that's happened so far in this case. At every single turn, we've been diminished. At every single turn, we've been told we were not enough. At every single turn, we've been told we were lying. At every single turn, we've been told, um, oh, it was just Larry Nassar. It was just a few bad apples. And it's so far beyond that point now um, that, no, I absolutely do not believe in the system, in any of the systems. I do believe in people. You still showed up at the Senate. And yet you still showed up today at the Senate hearing. Tell me why you felt it was important to still show up and make an appearance inside the system, despite how you feel. The the team of people that have been working on this from the beginning, since it began to come out, um, have been nothing but utterly faithful to the gymnasts. And they have kept their promises. And they have shown us that this is not just something they're doing uh, you know, for for a headline, and um, that's why we're here today. And I'm here today because of the 120 victims that were served to Larry, trafficked to Larry Nasser, a horrible predator. And honestly, like again, I hate just saying cliche things, but it is literally on a silver platter. And um, the the youngest was eight that we know of, 120 girls, eight-year-olds. They were all exposed to Larry Nasser during that five-month period where all the um, communication that was happening between Steve Penny and the FBI was happening. Fourteen months, according to some reports, about the failures to, or the FBI to take action. John Manley, let me turn to you in the last moments we have. What do you hope to see after this hearing? What is the next legal step in your mind. Well, number one, I think there needs to be a we're hoping that the Justice Department and the, the White House will insist that a special prosecutor be appointed to investigate this. Anybody that thinks this was a couple of errant FBI agents that just, you know, helped Steve Penny cover this up is naive. This is clearly there's clearly more to this story. And as uh, Jessica said and Ali said and, and Michaela and, and Simone said, no, we don't have answers. And, um, you know, the, the, the fact that the FBI covered this up and, and literally these agents conspired with USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to cover up Larry Nassar. And those aren't my words. That's the Senate and the Office of Inspector General report on this is beyond belief. Michaela reported her abuse and they falsified her report right. to protect Larry Nassar. That's unbelievable. And, and if they can do that to these women, what hope does an ordinary American have? In Washington, police say they're taking no chances as they get ready for a rally today in support of the January 6th rioters.
who stormed the nation's capital. More than 600 people have been charged for taking part in that deadly assault. Of those, about 60 are locked up, either awaiting trial or having already been convicted. This morning, fencing that was removed months after the failed insurrection is back up along two streets running alongside Capitol Hill. Jeff Pegues is there. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Police here putting the final touches on their security plan, and that includes putting up posters like this one. Notices saying all firearms prohibited within a thousand feet of this demonstration, and it's right behind these huge snow plows. Obviously, not out here to clear the snow. This is part of the security apparatus in place, right across from where the rally is going to take place. You see the Capitol there. Police in the foreground, you have barricades around, and anyone coming to this demonstration, they're still going to be about a quarter mile away from the Capitol. Capitol Hill is on high alert. There are layers of barricades, fencing and security cameras, canine units patrolling nearby Union Station. We're not going to tolerate violence. Capitol Police Chief acknowledged that violence was a possibility. In your view, are those threats of violence credible? We don't know with any certainty. But what we do know is that um, this, uh, the chatter that we heard prior to January 6th obviously turned out to be, um, uh, many of those threats turned out to be, in fact, uh, credible. There was far less security on January 6th, and the resulting attack that wounded more than 100 officers and led to five deaths has prompted Capitol Police this time around to deploy everyone available Saturday with 100 National Guard troops on standby just blocks from the Capitol. Capitol Police say that they are most concerned about the potential of clashes between protesters and counter-protesters. In my opinion, that's the most likely uh, scenario for violence. Rally organizer Matt Brainerd, a former Trump campaign staffer, says the event, which will include calls for the imprisoned January 6th rioters to be released, will be peaceful. The Capitol Police know that we are no threat. This is a theater to deter people from attending. But experts worry that it could serve as a recruiting event for future violent activities. The thing to watch out for is the idea that this is a networking opportunity. Uh, and I think what we need to worry about is not what just happens on Saturday, uh, but it's how this movement changes and morphs. And there is also, as we mentioned, this big concern about counter-protesters, clashes uh, created by counter-protesters who show up here. They're expecting about 700 people to show up for the primary protest, the Justice for J6. And you can see already police are in place. You have these big barriers with these snow plows here, too. They are ready for anything. They don't want any sort of slip-ups uh, similar to what, what happened on January 6th. So they've done a lot of work, a lot of preparation ahead of this rally. Michelle. And it looks like it. Jeff, thank you so much. You hear that at the end there? They called it a slip-up. January 6th, white terrorism. A slip-up. We do uh, say words are important on the compensatory call-in. Gusty Renegade, context of white supremacy. Hopefully, here for another broadcast to offer constructive information on what racism white supremacy is, how it works, and things that non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts. 
counter racist suggestions, observations, questions, uh, the number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate few things to share before we get to the folks who dialed in. I think Bay Area mom, she dialed in for neutralizing workplace racism yesterday evening. And she was talking about one of the young black children that she works with and how he gets really excited about television. And I think Rio, we did a counter racist review of that one some years back with Justice. Uh, but she said he would get really excited when the TV different, you know, cartoons and his shows, I guess, come on. He acts them out and all the rest of it. And she said, man, I'm trying to come in and do some of your lessons, get some of these goals, see if we can improve your vocabulary. We got serious things to work on. And, you know, maybe it would be more helpful to this child if maybe we could have no television on while we're doing our lesson. That's one thing that's been pretty consistent. I think Dr. Welsing said for years reading more important than watching television and we've had so many non-white guests uh particularly when people you know have asked like what was your process like for trying to start studying racism white supremacy more seriously and what did that look like so many people said it started with decreasing or eliminating television or maybe even doing what they call a fast where maybe you take two weeks uh or even two days uh and no television at all of any sort not Netflix on my laptop or anything else. No TV. Um, and just, you know, see what sort of impact. But really getting away from all of that white supremacy entertainment programming. That's another reason why we have no entertainment uh, and no sex uh, for the compensatory call in in terms of subject matter. Uh, but just trying to get away from all that entertainment, particularly if you are an attempted parent. Uh, I was thinking like, man, I think. I have known a number of white people who said, you know, no TV in the house. They didn't say anything about no white supremacy racism, but no television, like eh, lots of different reasons. No TV, don't need it. Sure, we can go to the movies every now and then. And, you know, we have Wi-Fi. So if it's something we want to watch, we can do that and all. But no TV in the house. I think that's so important, especially uh, if you have offspring uh, so that they're not just I mean, talk about spectating like, wow, spectating and then just being a sponge metaphor to absorb all of that white supremacy brain trashing. That should be a serious conversation. No television. If you're going to have offspring attempted parenting going on, no TV. Just the thought I do not have a TV, have not had a TV, I think. We don't have a TV currently in the residence and I've not owned a television. It's been a while. I'd have to. It's been years, more than five years. I think more than 10 years, maybe. But no TV. You don't need it. Pam talked about that, too. The late Pamela Evans Harris. She talked about that. Letting go of the TV. That's a bill you can eliminate. Cable bill and all that. Just have your Wi-Fi. You can catch what you need. But 
No TV. It's dangerous for so many reasons. Next, let's see. Uh, gee whiz. They quoted Bill Russell when they were talking about the mayor's race in Boston, Massachusetts, which came down to the final two candidates, and none of them are black females. They talked about uh, that you couldn't see that previously in Boston. Well, you're still not going to see it. The final uh, two candidates, Michelle Wu and Anissa Asalbi, hope that's how you say it, Asalbi George. Uh, These two candidates, uh, Michelle Wu is so-called Asian-American, and Miss Asalbi George is, she has one parent who is uh, Tunisian, and the other parent uh, is Polish. So I think she, or I suspect she would be classified as white, but neither of these candidates classified as black. No surprise there. Just getting a white woman. That's, it's not white male patriarchy. The system of white supremacy racism. Now, from that segment where they were talking about the mayor's race in Boston, incidentally, I've seen a number of different cities where they've had uh, a black mayor. Uh, remember Mayor Dinkins? New York City, uh, they had a, a black mayor uh, in the city where I was. I, Kwame Kilpatrick, who could forget? <laughs> uh, Ray Nagin in New Orleans. I've seen lots of black mayors. And uh, even we talked about in Chicago, uh, the late, saw, speaking of Pamela Evans Harris, uh, Chicago, the late uh, Mayor Harold Washington. We talked about that when we read uh, Barack Obama's autobiography, Dreams from My Father. Uh, I have never seen where having a black mayor does a whole lot to replace white supremacy with justice, even on a very small local level, which would be, you know, at least substantive for the non-white people who live in that area. I have not seen that. I've seen, I mean, hey, you can just take a snapshot uh, or take a look, an inspection of some of the names that I just gave and see what happened to some of these folks. I think two of them uh, had to do some time in greater confinement for their tenure as mayor. White people bragged and gloated about that schadenfreude. And then blame them for lots of problems as well. Say it's all their fault. But I've just I've not seen if if I am in error, if that's part of how we solve this problem is getting more black mayors. Well, then whoopie doo, And, you know, maybe next time around in Boston. But I, I just have not seen it. It's almost kind of embarrassing. Like it's almost 2022. And we're talking about a first black mayor as though that's white people are going to Pluto. And we're talking about a first black mayor, which is not even going to happen yet in Boston get their first Tunisian mayor maybe uh, next uh, when in the same segment before we even next the same segment they were talking about how the demographics racial classification in Boston so they're having uh, I guess a lower percentage of white people that's why they're not, not having a white male mayor this time around for the first time in ever Uh, And they said the demographics are matching what the demographics of the so-called country are. And we will be soon a majority minority area. That is talk about languaging nonsense all the way through. What does that mean? Uh, We'll have mostly non-white people. Or you could say it the other way. White genetic annihilation. White people will be the minority. Why can't that just be said? Why does everything have to be so garbled and Jim Crow and all this nonsense language to keep us confused and I'm submitting that that all is done deliberately whites know how garbled language garbled brain computer Dr. Welsing's main uh, uh, metaphor brain computer all of that equals garbled behavior not solving the problem confusion 
next. Now, they did the segment on NPR with Michelle Norris, All Things Considered, and they were talking with the victim who is a victim of a neo-Nazi hate crime, as they called it. And she went through the whole, you know, get the victim to apologize and all that. Victims guaranteed qualified VGQ. I will only remind folks, Mr. Fuller recommends not requesting, demanding uh, an apology from racists or anyone else I totally agree it should just be about solving problems uh, I found particularly now uh, closer to 2022 era race soldiers will give you apologies by the bucket loads at times that does not solve any problems they'll just apologize and then come right around five minutes later and call your nigger again and put poison in your water and all the rest of it oh my bad sorry about that and then come around and do the same thing tomorrow that is totally absolutely worthless for any mistreatment, act of racism, white supremacy. All of that said, VGQ. When she was talking in that segment, uh, in addition to the apology, I thought it was important when they were talking about the hate crime numbers, so-called, from the FBI and saying, you know, do you think that most people know about the number of hate crimes that have targeted black people? And I said, hey, why not give out the numbers if this is important and we think that people may not be uh, as informed about this information as they should. The FBI, because I posted this about two, three weeks ago, the FBI said, released statistics saying that they had 2,755 reported attacks of black people, not black and brown people, not people of color. 2,755 reported attacks of black people during the same period, they had 274 reported attacks of Asians. Now, I said consistently, mistreatment of any sort, totally incorrect of any non-white people. I'm just saying for all of the commentary and even that report to bring in so-called anti-Asian violence, totally incorrect, shouldn't be happening. But 2,755 to 274 why aren't we talking about anti-black racism about 10 times as much if my math is correct then we're talking about so-called anti-asian violence which is also correct but i'm just saying as someone who has for a long time black get back the darker you are you're classified as black double whammy we got a sound effect for it and everything for a long time black people treated way worse system of white supremacy make it clear make that plain explicit so we all will be less confused about what's happening anywho uh within all that they brought up harambe remember harambe the gorilla they had to shoot at the zoo <laughs> it was a black child fell in the pit and they had to shoot the gorilla and they were so upset in fact they wanted to charge the black mother with child neglect matter <laughs> metaphor of all time remember I had to do a major rewind when they came out to announce the prosecutors I think this happened in Ohio I'd have to go back to check it's been I think about five years or so I think this happened in 2016 maybe but uh, when the prosecutor came out to announce there are no charges the mom didn't do anything incorrect you know sad all the way around but we're happy the child was saved and he said yeah the mom you know she didn't do anything incorrect it's not like she was in the bathroom smoking crack do what like what are you talking about like metaphors they reveal so much about what you're thinking but man if you don't remember harambe 
from I think that was two, that might have been the same year of uh, President Trump's triumph. I think that might have been leading up to it. Poor Harambe. But if you don't remember that one, uh, go back and listen. It's in the compensatory call, and it would just be, you know, which which week did that happen? When we talked about all that. Next, um, they gave the report from Farrell, uh, where the former basketball coach Ed McCluskey. They're talking about having him inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame. Same Hall of Fame with Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Ed McCluskey. When I heard all that, I was all of the, you know, he smacked black players with a clipboard and beat them down and your parents didn't want you and you're nothing, you're worthless. That's, you know, Bobby Knight. We've heard all that for eons that right there might be enough to get you into the basketball hall of fame boy he could curse a negro what i thought of woody allen marv albert who i believe is also in the naismith hall of fame that bobby knight might be in the basketball hall of fame too i'd have to check but that's what i thought of donald sterling why put yourself in that sort of position? Coach, be in the locker room, all that, so you can be around these young black boys. Why be in that position other than to practice race? Hey, Larry Nasser, let me get current. That's what I thought of. Remember when Dr. Gerald Horn and he said it was the basketball coach at the school who he found out years later. Sometimes that's how it works. You don't find out this information. Who wants to talk about that? Larry Nasser, who wants to talk about that? That's what I thought of with Ed McCluskey. Maybe, maybe not, but many things do not get addressed. The homoeroticism. Many things do not get addressed in the system of white supremacy. Woody Allen. Woody Allen talking about Charles waking up in his bed and Charles Oakley standing over him. Woody. Next, the USA, United Kingdom, Australia Alliance. We'll talk about that. We have the Global Sunday Talk tomorrow uh, to get to check in with our folks in different parts of the world. You get to hear what's happening with the COVID-19 situation, uh, as well as this alliance. We have people in the United Kingdom, so we can hear you know, what they've heard about all of this. Uh, I don't know if we have non-white people in Australia, although we've had guests from Australia on the program before, but to kind of hear how all of this is being talked about globally. What I thought was significant from that segment, they said that when they made the announcement, you got President Biden and everybody there, but they had everybody else on uh, Zoom, right, virtual cameras and such. Uh, but when they made the announcement, they said no one mentioned China, but it's clear that's what they were talking about. I think Josh Wicked, he's been a guest on the program repeatedly. He said, hey, that's rule number one, just like in the movie Fight Club. Rule number one, do not talk about racism. We're not going to mention China at all, even though this is totally about these three white nations with the flag color, red, white, and blue. Dr. Welsing talked about that in the ISIS papers. Dr. Kanban talked about that in the last book. We talked about it on this program repeatedly, the symbolism of those colors, but to have those three very similar flags for those three separate uh, white dominated countries uh, in terms of population 
long history of them working together in support of white supremacy racism they listed all the wars that they worked together in support of even had to figure out some of their probably you don't practice racism the way that we do we have to figure out if you're going to have your niggers here in australia for world war ii we talked about that black soldier blues got a whole documentary on that not even going to mention china but that's what this is about going to make sure rising tide of color against white world supremacy lothrop stoddard Dr. Welsing told us to read that book. It's in the archives for the book club, right along with Woody Allen. Uh, But they talked about China extensively. This moment, perhaps white people needing to unite globally reminded me of my uh, what's the metaphor? The Voltron effect on a global scale. Uh, Let's see. Last two things I'll get in Uh, the segment where they talked about uh, (laughs) The last two segments that I'll make a comment about briefly when they talked about the attempted mother, Rakia Young, uh, being pulled out of her SUV and beaten and they snatched her nephew and traumatized the whole family. I do not have children. Some days I say that, thankfully, because I mean. No words to say, but man, the master deceivers is not enough to snatch out a black female in front of her children, in front of her nephew, beat her savagely. It's not enough just to do that. After we do that, then we go and snatch the offspring and take a picture as though, oh, look at us. We're in Haiti after the earthquake and found this rabid Negro child who was being suckled by wolves. No count mother was snorting crack in the corner. They said it was a heap of criminal activity, right? Yes, yes. We saved this Negro child from the wolves. We are humanitarians, you know, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, you know. And we're showing the brothers love, see? Are you, who even does that? We talk about Mr. Fuller when he says the most familiar mystery and what does it mean to be white? Who has that sort of mentality? It's not enough just to beat you down unjustly. Then I'm a lie and say we rescued your child on top of that. What does it mean to be white? I do not have children. <laughs> what does that moron say? He says, he says, sobriety would be best. That is one. He does say that one regularly. But the other one he says, he says, white people do not care about children you can take either one you can take what I just the case I just mentioned in Philadelphia with Rakia Young or you can take the last segment that we went with Simone Biles not just that Larry Nasser, a doctor I thought you do the Hippocratic Oath and all the rest of it do no harm <laughs> Eight-year-old. Eight-year-old. This is the U.S. Gymnastics Olympics program. Not that it would be all right if this was just your local gym or YMCA or something like that. It wouldn't be any better, but I would think like, good God, like Simone Biles and all. We better be on our best behavior. 
white people don't care about children and this is not an anomaly Simone Biles the legend she didn't say this is just Larry Nassar Simone Biles said it was the entire system just making it clear the system is the system of white supremacy because it wasn't no count black males who were in charge at the United States gymnastics program I don't think it's not black females that's not the model minorities it's white people who are in charge certainly when we get to talking about the FBI lied and we talk about man when justice she used to ask all the time how do white people conceal information from non-white people and you would have folks stuttering what because yeah I certainly don't conceal information what are you talking about concealing information I can't even conceal using all these big words they said the FBI covered this up for a year where he had access to 120 they didn't say women like Woody Allen they said girls children for a year including an 8 year why would that be something to lie about let's take action immediately who's trying to be embarrassed in front of the Olympics the whole world is going to know these folks everybody in the world knows Simone Biles white Woody Allen my goodness that was kind of a stumble on when I say that that was not a book that I would have uh, oh my gosh we got to read Woody Allen's autobiography man I've said repeatedly now that we got to the Soon Yi section oh my what is white culture where you have a white man who's 55 years old who can write about he's 55 at the time he's 85 now a white man who at 55 can brag about so-called being in love with a 20 year old 56 21 either way they're 35 years of age difference who was the adopted child of the woman he's dating really he's functioning like a stepfather here and now I'm in love white people do not care about children even that's connected Woody Allen has so much of that in his films where old white men like Larry Nasser get to molest and fondle and have all kinds of kinky sex as it's called with young girls who are not even 18 years old and that gets glorified in his films and works people sit around no problem why would they do that what is white culture that's why you have this that's why you just having the same story Jerry Sandusky you just keep having the same story the Catholic Church you just keep having the same story the folks in Chicago you can't even go swimming it's the same story now is that black people every time Dr. Welsing encouraged us to look at patterns that's a big one all over the world that's a big one many things to talk to your children about racism white supremacy there are many sexual predators on the plantation white people do not care about children the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if 
you would like to participate. One of our listeners wrote in workplace racism yesterday. I read his commentary, but I left out the beginning part where he said very long time listener and occasional caller spectating. Uh, I'm finally in a place financially where I can spare a couple nickels towards the cows and it feels good, sir. I plan to invest on the regular much obliged listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the cows is constructive, visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. You'll see the PayPal button top right corner linked. The uh, link to Cash App, link to Venmo, and the link to PayPal in case you need it all at the top right corner. Huge thanks to all the investors who have kept us on the air for a dozen plus years. If we are still here in February, it will be 13 years. Amazing. Hopefully we have offered more often than not constructive information uh, and been accurate uh, about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, and things that we need to be doing to solve this problem immediately uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be grand just make sure everybody get, gets at least one chance uh, to share uh, if you know you are in a rowdy environment uh, if you could use your mute button that would be great uh, just makes it so that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise uh, no metaphors I just said like man for Harambe it's not like she's simile. It's not like she was in the bathroom smoking crack. The metaphors, they will use them on a regular basis to practice deception. Uh, if we could make an effort to be precise, specific words are super important. Uh, if we could make an effort uh, to be as exact precise as possible with our language uh, if you need more time to formulate what you are trying to say that would be great uh, sometimes we don't have logic and so we'll substitute a metaphor or analogy and often that just adds confusion I will prompt about that much obliged uh, number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate and we did have a caller who asked yesterday I said I'll ask again today if we have any folks if you have any experience um, supervising hiring supervisors any sort of management experience uh, if you have any tips uh, for someone who is looking to metaphor they use is move up the ladder to get a job in management any tips things that you would include in your resume or responses in terms of or just maybe even things to be prepared for for the interview uh, or jargon as I said language to make sure you include in your resume any other tips that would be appreciated folks looking to become supervisors learn as much as you can and expect racism and sabotage uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open proceed Hello. Greetings, caller in Georgia. Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, thank you for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, very constructive clips. Um, it was, I guess, weird because I always think about Boston and how it's 
not the smaller city, but you never really hear about a lot of, I don't know, black people coming out of there, being successful. I mean, of course, it's proportional to every area, but you always have New York, Philadelphia, of course, Atlanta, Chicago, even, you know, for regular small populations, Nebraska, you hear all about that. Um, so it kind of makes sense that when they did the comparison, they said non-immigrant black people as opposed, I guess, to immigrant black people who are, I guess, counted just in general as immigrants and how they're kind of helping the city and the city's helping them. I think you did a report a couple of years ago about the mothers in Boston getting some help and how a lot of the help was geared towards um, non-immigrant black mothers so I guess just creating more division amongst black people. Um, about the Georgia prisons, that's one of the jobs I was I applied for. I did get an interview. Um, I guess I'm glad I think why I'm glad I guess I didn't get that job because I'd probably be one of those type of people looking to bust to find out what's going on, what's wrong, you know, how to. Top, I don't want to say topple the system. That's not. I don't know if I would do all that, but I would want to know if they were mistreating people. And, of course, they would give you protocols on how to and not interact with the prisoners. Um, the job would have been with, the, I guess, the revenue division, which means, you know, prison, basically prison labor. And um, they have a farm. They build all the furniture for the, all the departments, I guess, in the state of Georgia. And it goes on and on, um, the things that they do it's like wow um yeah those are the two things that really came to mind of course the harass the unfortunate harassment of Simone Biles and those involved um of course they tend to sit on information for a while um and I was reading while I was listening to the clips, you know, trying to read articles, trying to read. Um, always be careful, you know, where you get your information from. You know, in general, I don't really read Yahoo. It's just kind of like the page that comes up. Just kind of see generic things. And there was an article about an Oregon doctor who lost his license. And I'm looking at the picture of the person in Oregon. Oh, this person doesn't look like someone that might be from Oregon. Concerning, I know the history, we've talked about how they had a constitution where they didn't want black people. Um, and this person wasn't black, but they were definitely darker. And then I clicked on the article to look and go, I know this is not right. And it says the person is from Nepal. I'm like, but what does this have to do with someone in Oregon getting their license revoked? So, you know, always be careful of that. Um even if you think the source is reputable, you know, always keep looking and actually read the articles and not just the headlines. And that's true even for newspapers, if you get the physical newspaper. You know, you don't want to just go by the byline or the headline. You want to read to get more actual information because they twist it all the, you know, most of the time, if not all the time. And that's all I can think of for right now. I guess I should have wrote more down, but if something happens and there's a love, I'll chime in. Thank you. Much obliged. Thank you kindly for sharing, ma'am. Um, 
I don't I don't think of like Boston as having like a substantial group of black people who live there. Like you mentioned Philadelphia and Atlanta. Like I think, oh, yeah, like they have substantial populations and HBCUs in some of those cities and that sort of thing. I don't think of any of that with Boston. Like I know Malcolm X even has uh, connections to that area and stayed there when he was making his transition from, you know, Detroit Red and all that. But, yeah, I think when I think of black people in Boston, I think of like Charles Stewart and uh ted landsmark being speared with the american flag around so-called busing that sort of thing like i don't think of i'll put the new edition sorry new edition. <laughs> sorry. i don't maybe they have a maybe one of the members has a biography or something talking about their time growing up in in boston or they have a vh1 special talking about their time growing up in Boston and all that good stuff. Maybe they, they might have even been there for Charles Stewart. I don't know. Have to see. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't really have a connection. Black people in Boston. That's good point. Um, and always, for sure, verify your sources of information. There's so much uh, inaccuracies and deceptions and all the rest. Sometimes people make errors too, myself included. Uh, Dr. Rasayan and Kurt triangulate. You should be able to find uh, information in multiple sources to kind of corroborate the information or add on to get different details just to make sure that you are getting accurate information as best you can. But yeah, that can be a challenge in a system primarily operated through deception. Uh, let's see. Other folks with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Folks are getting their thoughts together. Other folks that have a hand up again, we'll be here uh, tomorrow. Global Sunday talk 3 P. Wait a minute. Yes. 3 p.m. Eastern 12 noon Pacific. Uh, we'll check in. I'm super excited. Well, I guess one will get our global check in on what's happening with the COVID-19 situation and all of that in different parts of the world. I do think that's constructive, but I am excited about the whole China thing. Uh, we have listeners in that part of the world as well. So to kind of see what the response is we'll tune in very important to make sure we keep in mind racism white supremacy global problem trying to be thinking of this globally to solve that problem universal man universal woman uh let's see the streets got while folks are getting their thoughts together the portion on the lack of enforcement uh, with regards to driving and speed limits and all of that in New York. We just talked about that right of way, Angie Schmidt. Now they said that this took place in Harlem where they had a three month old who was hitting a stroller. Like, Oh, uh, I was pushing a stroller not that long ago, trying to help out black family, black child. And man, I felt so nervous. Now I'm here in Seattle. We have bike lanes and all that good stuff, big sidewalks and uh, all the things that they talked about, you know, nice big, uh, crosswalks so you can you know safely cross the street and all that i felt super nervous like man i did not want to cross the street at all just man people drive crazy all the time and then i'm black and system of white supremacy just yeah so horrendous uh but i'm not surprised because they said it's been lots of that over the past 18 months people going out and drag racing and just being totally reckless 
uh, on the streets and what have you and hitting pedestrians and or other cars and all the rest of it. Um, and they had even talked about in the what we read right uh, right of way. Uh, New York was mentioned. I think Philadelphia was mentioned. Some of those very cities uh, were talked about and being how dangerous even some of the very problems where it's difficult to change the traffic speed. They said they wanted to lower it from 25 to 20 and even they had other ideas about rumble strips and, and what have you. And they said they had it was a Herculean fight to do that and all the rest of it. All of that is in the book, especially areas where black people are. It can be really, really difficult to even get a crosswalk, which is not highfalutin technology paint, generally white paint, but not that difficult to obtain. And even that, I don't know, crosswalk for the Negroes. Hmm. Hmm. Even while I was hearing all that and they were uh, the caller dialed in, she was saying she was in Harlem and she said that they drive on the sidewalk there. I'm trying to imagine like anywhere in Seattle, anywhere, even where they have the black people warehoused. I cannot think of one spot where you would be able to get away with driving on the sidewalk. No, you would probably have to run over a bike lane to even get access to do such a thing here that also system how things are designed and who is in charge of the architecture of the plantation that we live on Simone Biles system Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed Hey, Gus, can I be heard? Greetings, victim of racism in New Jersey. Yes, sir. How you doing? Um, I am. So uh, the floods, um, I think it was talking about uh, flood zones and homes. So uh, New Jersey is, you know, it's, it's, it's become quite extensive. So I could see how uh, black people uh victim of racism. We just, you know, have the opportunity to uh, buy property that was affordable, even if it's in the flood zone. Um, so I can, I could imagine that that's going to be a, a common practice, because, um, you know, right now uh, we're trying to find a home. I have uh, friends that's looking for homes, and they're stumbling. They're they're having problems. They're being outbidded. Most of the homes, a lot of the homes that uh, they were interested in, um, people are basically coming with cash, you know, so and, you know, they're they're going over the asking price, sometimes maybe 50 to $90,000 more than what the asking price is. So if somebody had the opportunity, um, a victim of racism to get a home, especially in New Jersey with the um, high cost of living. I could see a lot of black people moving into flood zones. Um, I happened to be outside doing uh, the big hurricane. Um, Gus, I must say, was it was one of the most scariest experiences that I had, um, you know, because I was leaving work and 
you know, it was, you were on the highway and it was just constant slowdowns because, um, you know, it, the water, the water just accumulated so fast. Um, you know, so I was, I've never seen rain fall like this before. Um, unfortunately, you know, my car, uh, made it through, I made it, I made it home. And, um, but the next day, um, to describe the scene was uh, maybe like a scene from a movie, maybe uh, uh, Will Smith, I Am Legend, with uh, the abandoned cars that was just um, left on the highways. So, um, and these reports now are not talking about global warming as a theory. They're, you know, they're reporting it as a matter of fact. Um, but, uh, you know, even with, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really contemplating on, uh, moving more inland away from, uh, the coast of, um, the Atlantic, um, because, you know, not only do we have to deal with now, or not only do we have to deal with the severe winters, you know, now we have to deal with these, uh, these hurricanes and this, uh, flooding. I, I never knew what a flash flood was, but, it's um, something that you don't want to get, you know, caught, caught in, you know. Um, I'm from Newark, New Jersey, so um, you were talking about black mayors and not changing the conditions of uh, black people. That's true of Newark. And add Newark to the list of mayors who was incarcerated. Uh, former uh, Mayor Sharp James uh, was arrested, longtime mayor. Um, I, I would say, um, in retrospect, he was the mayor, uh, before Cory Booker, uh, Cory Booker couldn't defeat him. Uh, the only way Cory Booker got into, uh, the mayor seat in, uh, Newark, New Jersey was because of the unfortunate incarceration of former, um, Sharp James. Uh, New York City, I work in New York City, so I'm familiar with, the recklessness of um, crossing the street, and also New York City um, is a, has loosened their laws on uh, uh, motorbikes. So these mopeds and these motorbikes, um, I don't think you have to have a license. Um, so people are using that, um, you know, uh, people of maybe that can't afford cars or riding these motorbikes and they are driving on the sidewalks. Um, I drive trucks. I mean, they're just basically, um, cutting through traffic, uh, you know, the middle of lanes. Um, I don't know what it's called, but I know you're not supposed to ride the line in traffic. They're doing that. So I've witnessed that. And I've also, um, being though I'm making deliveries in New York City, there is a, there's always a fear of somebody, you know, hitting me. Um, and I must also check myself because um, at times, you know, um, you know, there is a dis, there is a difference. There's a different feeling when I'm making a turn and there are white people crossing and when there are uh, uh, black people. You know, so that also speaks to uh, that, <laughs> if you want to call it, that uh, anti-black gene within me. So I make a 
conscious effort to anytime I see a black person being though that I'm in a truck, you know, to give them the same courtesy that I would give a white pedestrian uh, uh, crossing the street, you know. So, um, you know, so that's, but you know what, that's, that's real amazing. And we talk about this, you know what I mean? We talk about, you know, um, the anti, you know, before you call out the anti-blackness and other people, you have to check the anti-blackness in yourself and growing up in this environment, you do kind of have more of a regard for white life than, um, black life, you know? So, um, that's something that, um, um, that I check when I'm behind the wheel and I'm turning into these crosswalks, uh, with, with the truck. And I've also been working and just had some random white person, you know, hit me. It was, they hit me with, uh, their, uh, their, their mirror. And, you know, just kept going and made it to the red light. And I remember I just, you know, I walked up on the uh, the driver. And I'm like, sir, you, you know you just hit me. And he just, you know, I mean, just looked at me like, okay. And, you know, so, you know, no damage, no foul. So, um, yeah. But um, I yield. Much obliged, victim in New Jersey. Um I thought that was important as well, uh, the report where they were talking about moving prop. Now, see, that was another report. Just like China, they didn't say race. They just said low income. People who are struggling to get their first home. Hmm. Who would that be? Low income. Maybe the folks in Appalachia. Maybe that's it. They're going to move them from. West Virginia and put them in the floodlands. Maybe? No? Hmm. And then they said the area where this fella who sounds like he could be a non-white person, but I don't know. This is audio. I didn't have a picture. They're moving him to the area and they say they have a plan to help people who live here move out because of the flood risk. <laughs> like, what in the world? <laughs> like, uh, whoo, is this? Now, that's another one. Now, in a system of racism, white supremacy, this is the best we can do for black people to get them a house. Put them in an area where you already are essentially evacuating the people because it's not safe. Unless the niggers will put the niggers here. You got flood insurance? Better have plenty of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, let's see. Speaking of anti-black now, I can take that two ways. One, I just talked about this uh, here in Beloved Seattle, crosswalks and all. This was two weeks ago. I was in Capitol Hill where the houses average a million dollars and they have tons of bike lanes and crosswalks. I'm at the intersection of 15th and Olive. I'm uh, at the intersection. There is no crosswalk, but as Angie Schmidt told us, every intersection is a legal crosswalk marked or no. They tell you cross at the corner. Bam, I'm crossing and this car wasn't there. I didn't dart out in traffic or anything. Black motorist, black male. He stops. But it's that. Oh, yes. Cross black brother. Replace white supremacy with justice. Have a blessed day. Nah, nah, nah. Uh, get out of the street, man. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> like, man, this is a crosswalk. Black brother, brother. No, <laughs> like, 
I thought I was going to have to run to get out of the road now. That's another one where I always feel safer, better when I am crossing the intersection with someone classified as white I feel or a dog. I feel way safer, black person, non-white motorist, white motorist, whatever. Uh, white life is worth more. So, hey, the anti-blackness hits us all. And I could also give this second time this week. This will be my only biblical quote uh, that I'll be able to do off the top. Or they say off the top of your head, I'll have it memorized. Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite. First, remove the beam out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. That's going to be my anti-blackness quote from now on. I can quote the Bible, and I can say brother, and it'll be genuine because that's what's in the Bible. But that is that is exactly it. Like everybody, we are an expert. If you want to talk about somebody being anti-black and not following the code, the person that you know best, all their errors, yourself. Just that alone. Do I talk to black people the same way I talk to white people? Am I quick to get an attitude and put them in their place? You don't know what you're talking about. And then if it's a white person, I'm, is, that, is that how I behave? Should I behave in that way? Should I be revving the engine when a black person is in the crosswalk and then a white person comes? Oh, take your time. Just be yeah, my... Gus, I mean, Gus if, I, if I can interject, I mean, yes, because I... I had to like I I, I but I I've seen myself doing that. You know what I mean? Um, you know, like kind of like because you know somebody somebody black might be taking their time crossing the street, and the first thing in my mind is you know what I'm saying. I'm like, come on, man, who you think you is, man? Hurry up. You know what I'm saying? But if if it's you know if it's a white woman in a stroller with the baby, you know you know. Let me slow down, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, law enforcement is watching, and, and I even look like um not yielding, you know. Um, I'm going to be reprimanded um with a ticket. So, you know, so that's why I make conscious decisions to bestow the same courtesy, you know. And, and I mean, I don't, again, like I said, I don't, you know, I don't know where where that disregard came from. I mean, I have I, I have an idea. But, you know, to have to check yourself, you know what I'm saying, and, and, and acknowledge that it's there, you know, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, that's half of the battle. Ashe, Ashe, Matthew 7, 5, that's going to be my Bible quote. Uh, much obliged. I think that's so important. And it happens to all, television, big part of it, but there's so much brain trashing just in how we think about black people on a regular basis it's uh it's amazing just starting to pay attention to our own behavior and how we get trained to to view and and treat each other so yeah that that is a huge portion of solving the problem right there you try to be as courteous as i can to other black people at all times just you know much obliged for sharing sir super important um, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Let the church say. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, let the church say amen. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Can I be heard? 
sir. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes, greetings. Uh, DCS program uh, had a session today. Uh, basically, we are uh, uh, still going over some of the uh, introductory uh, uh, tasks, such, such as uh, uh, rememorizing the uh, the uh, oath of the uh, DCS program, uh, which is, you know, uh, basically committing oneself to uh, being a better person, uh, assisting family members uh, by uh, being the best that you can be as a young person, young black male. Uh, and therefore, it, it extends outside of your uh, family unit, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, also, uh, I uh, made it my business to... Uh, uh, question question them on the uh, part of uh, one of the the, the the movie that I showed them uh, last week. They took notes on it. There was an important part to whereas uh, the father was basically uh, chastising the son because the son was basically going over uh, the law to the letter and quote-unquote what rights he has, whereas the father, rightfully so, logically so, was stating that that is something that white people with guns do not have to abide by. You want to survive the encounter with law enforcement not get out of the car shouting about your rights, what rights you have. Because at some point in time, you could become dead right. Uh, and uh, everything with Will today. Uh, got a great bunch of uh, young people. Um, uh, other than that, uh, oh, I... <laughs> I was uh, looking. I don't know. I don't know if it was that te uh, the television or my phone, and uh, I was aware that there are some non-white people who are rich classified as black in Mexico, but I didn't. I didn't hear what was going on, <laughs> and uh, come to find out, which everybody on the line probably knows except for me that that was actually people from the part of the earth that's called Haiti. That was in the area that generally were people from uh, Mexico would join up at to attempt to enter into the part of the world 
that's called the United States. And uh, in other words, you can just witness the desperation of people uh, that are literally a force to move from place to place, which is uh, a standard, unfortunately, the standard uh, part of the reaction of non-white people under the global system of racist white supremacy. And, uh, I mean, if you look at where Haiti is on a, on a map, uh, that is, that had to be one heck of a trip to get around and into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, wherever, however they, they got in that, in that location. I, I am not sure on how that was accomplished, but, uh, there are thousands of Haitians who are in that location as I'm speaking, I think. Outside of that, uh, I mentioned it, mentioned this last week, and I'm, and I'm noticing it now also, and it's probably there's a lot of talk other than myself about it. Uh, I watch a lot of football with the sound turned down. Uh, I don't need anybody to talk about it. And uh, But what was actually much more essential than the game itself was these games is full of literally tens of thousands of white people. <laughs> In this one case, this game was between Penn State and uh, Auburn. And the home field was at Penn State. You're talking about it had to be at least eighty to 100,000 white people wearing white t-shirts is a welsing welsing moment white t-shirts that stay that says white out on it shaking white pom-poms nobody with a mask at all just to show you that you can't tell white people anything other white people can't tell white people anything at all you know, about anything about safety, if they don't really want to put up with it, with it. Uh, you, you would, you would, you would not know that there is such thing as a pandemic going on. Uh, that particular game, uh, there was another one, uh, that I observed and it's one that I'm observing now, uh, with Brigham Young, uh, that, uh, has this distinction. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, quite interesting, quite interesting. Uh, I, I would like to uh, uh, kind of like follow, follow it to see if any results are reported on it, if there are some sort of results that exist with it. Uh, and it would be interesting to uh, find out on what would be the, uh, the uh, action, uh, with the results anyway, behind this. Uh, and that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. Peace. Amen. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, very glad to hear about the Young Folks uh, DCS program. Uh, got a good crop of uh, students and good folks working with them. So 
hopefully that will help them make logical decisions. Maybe they won't have any of those uh, ugly encounters with enforcement officers, but if they do, already given them logic that they will have to rely on to keep themselves safe. Everything is about safety. Survive this safely, then I can get home and deal with things afterwards. Um, the masking situation, man, like now last week, uh, I think caller it retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, he was telling us about, uh, my home team, the Washington Huskies. They were visiting, uh, the big house, not the slave house, but the big house football stadium in Michigan, (laughs) Ann Arbor. Right. And, uh, 90,000 people, no mask, cheering, cutting the fool, beat us down and laughed about it. Now, the Huskies came back and literally, so I'm at the U Village Starbucks. We could walk. If we were here right now, we could walk to the stadium where the Huskies play today in about five minutes, maybe less, depending on how brisk we walk. Definitely, we'd be there. Ten minutes, we'll be there. Um, I just didn't get to see. I was doing work. I didn't really care uh, about the I don't. They could lose every game. They could win every game. I don't care. Um, so I didn't look. Right. But they're supposed to have a mask mandate here. So for all of uh, their stadium home games, all the C, I think the Seahawks are playing at home tomorrow too. The Mariners, all those games, they're supposed to have masks on. Man. I want you to tell me who's going to enforce that in a stadium where you've got tens of thousands of rowdy, probably intoxicated right. white people. Uh, excuse me, right. ma'am. Put your mat, excuse, sir, sir. Put your mat, sir, ma'am. Put your. Who is going to get paid to do that? How many police officers are you going to bring in and pay overtime to come in and walk through that mask, mask, sir? Come, especially once they get rowdy and you know got the cheer. Oh, touched it. Come on, come on, come on. But I'll watch. I'll see tomorrow for Russ. I'm certain Russell Wilson time. They are not putting a mask on. You are not going to have me shut up at the stadium as much money and beer uh, as I have shelled out and consumed to get in here. I am going to cheer on the mighty Seahawks. No mask. Let's see. That's right. Tell me what to do. Uh, and as he said, the fallout from all of this as well. I'm curious myself. There was one last one last thing I, I left out with the uh, session. Uh, we we had to go back to our foundational uh, uh, documentary, Emmett Till, uh, show that if you know it's only like a 20 minute clip, but it's concise uh, on. Uh, what took place and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And and within that group, there are 14-year-olds or younger. And uh, I kind of like brought it up to present times by mentioning similarities with Tamir Rice and also uh, Dylan Ruth, his reasoning for killing those, what, eight to nine people in that church was based on the same thing the two white males stated on why they killed Emmett Till. For protection of our white women. To keep you nigger males away from our white women. Uh, and I mean, I mean, and the, and the two didn't know each other personally. <laughs> and uh, yeah, great question and answer period after the uh, documentary also. Thank you.
Love it. Love it. Sharing about racism, white supremacy, and sexual abuse. That's kind of the same thing right there, too. Uh, let's see. Star 61, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, hand up. Commentary. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings, uh, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, just a few comments on some of the segments. And um, first off, the L.A. segment, the L.A. police segment, in regards to them gathering data about social media from um, people that they pulled to the side. It's kind of similar to something they did in New York City a couple of, I think it was a couple, might have been over a year now, where they arrested 120 black males for suspected gang membership. And they they did this via one of the tools they use with social media. Um, by the way, 117 of them are still in jail and they don't, they haven't really had a case yet. Their cases are still open. Um, but this is something that the part that really bothered me as well was when the gentleman was being asked the question, what do people do when they're being asked for their social media information? I believe he was just being extremely disingenuous where he stated, well, you know, you could plead the fifth and you could uh, not give up those, uh, you know, that information. And you know, and I know, and everybody else on the line that if you don't give up your information to police officers, quote unquote, cooperate. Uh, and as um, retired firefighter stated, survive the ordeal. That's the whole purpose of when you get into those interactions. You may not survive that ordeal or come out fairly well without giving them the information they want. So that pressure to give that information to me is, is way higher than that person stating or someone stating, well, I'll plead the fifth or you choose not to, or am I being arrested? Can I drive away now? Those things just don't work, um, at least from my knowledge. Um, the next thing, the NPR segment in regards to psycho, um, in regards to um, driving, in, in um, New York City, it's it's extremely dangerous. As the gentleman from Jersey stated, I um I cycle, I cycle from borough to borough, from Brooklyn to Queens, Bronx, Manhattan, and um, you have to be very careful. You have to ride the bike as if they do not see you. Never assume that they see you as as a as a rider. Um, and I commend the gentleman from Jersey for having that attitude in regards to keeping, you know, a positive perspective when he sees um, non-white people. Uh, it, it, trust me, it's a reassurance for myself as a cyclist because while I'm riding, maybe going 10 miles or whatever miles an hour, him just nudging me or bumping me will pretty much, you know, may end my life. So that's, that's um, much respect on that one. Uh, but something else to mention while I was cycling is that I do notice I went to an island called Randall's Island in New York, and this island was completely secluded. And when I say that, I mean there are not that many ways that you're going to get on the island. And when I got on it, I noticed I was like one of two black people that I saw walking, riding through the island. Um, there were barely any black people there. And if they were, they were playing sports because they were these massive fields, beautiful grass, trees, shrubbery, all the scenery you would 
hope to see and areas for them to just play soccer, football, baseball. And it's, it, it was, it's just amazing. And I noticed when I, I came back around, um, looking at the views and looking at the people that I was probably one other black cyclist there, but it was a real secluded area for white people only almost. Um, and the police state police were located there as well. Um, and then when I rode on the other side to go to Manhattan and in the black areas, you could the non-white areas, you could clearly see the difference where there's barely any shrubbery, nothing to cover the fields. So the, there's no grass. It's just concrete. So the heat is just being absorbed. So people are coming out there. Barely anybody's coming out there, but there are a few people coming out there to work out, but it's blazing hot in the sun. Um, barely any like real equipment. Those other areas on Randall's Island had workout equipment for you. It was, it was just an extreme opposite. Um, even when I went to certain parks in the white areas, I saw skating rings where people could roller skate. And I even saw a hockey ring um, in the middle of New York City and Manhattan in these, again, secluded white areas. Um, just real interesting, that I, um, something that I took notice of. Um, lastly, um, I'm not vaccinated, uh, so I actually got in contact with Dr. Ruby Lathan um, just in regards to kind of work with her to get my, my health up to as premium as it possibly could be. Um, but that being the case, I'm not able to go into any gyms, no boxing gym, no I try I wanted to do archery, can't do that. Everything is just off the list. So what I've been doing in the meantime, like I stated, is cycling to, to stay active. Um, I'm wondering if anybody else is experiencing anything like that in their state as well. But um, that is all I have for now. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, color victim in New York. Uh, they just like yesterday, uh, Friday. Uh, so Seattle, as I've said, is in King County, like Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, beginning, I think it's October. You and it might be the middle of October, but patrons, um, it's similar to New York. You will be required to show proof of vaccination to enter gyms, bars, and restaurants. So it'll be similar. Uh, employees and those establishments are not required to show proof of vaccination. Um, and I don't, it doesn't apply to like grocery stores and I've looked at the list. Some other things do not apply grocery stores and other places. Shops, uh, do not count and all that. Just bars, gyms, uh, and restaurants. You have to show proof of vaccination. And if you don't, you're out. Now they also have a healthy contingent of white people who said, you know, no vaccine mandate, not doing it. Yum, yum, yum. So it'll be interesting to see how all of the, how all of that, you know, proceeds over the next couple of weeks or so. But, about to be the same thing here in the Seattle area in a few days. So we'll see how to navigate it. Um, interestingly, the portion about in Los Angeles, them requiring or uh, getting stealing social media information and all the rest of it would be a great uh, reminder. Maybe not having social media. So then you have nothing to share. Certainly not having it in your name. Uh, beyond all of that, it's so interesting. Our caller, he was pointing out, he was saying that, you know, telling them, am I under arrest and I'm not going to provide this information and that doesn't work. Uh, that type of scenario 
is in uh, there are two videos busted and then uh, know your rights they have two videos that are on YouTube where you can watch where they give that exact scenario I've shared that on the program uh, for years and even with that caveat now you're not saying this like you have an army behind you or like you you're saying this like a weak victim of white supremacy and this is all contingent upon the situation that the officers are clear hey we are race soldiering right now forget the law books and whatever nigra i'm not gonna do this but if you are stopped in a public place these suspected racist officers are gonna have to more or less follow the law they can't just do whatever they want and beat you down it seems like they're at least being civil for the moment oh yeah i've done this repeatedly lived to tell about it in fact i've done it repeatedly and never had a problem i had an officer who asked uh to search i had my backpack on i was at a mall public place i was at a mall uh these were not uh this was police armed all of that and i said uh am i under arrest he said no i decline to uh, or no it's i do not give consent for any searches of my person my property my vehicle without a warrant again I'm not saying it like a gangster or anything else like that officer I know you're doing your job but it would be the same thing am I under arrest no okay and it might even be exactly what they said that's the exact way it goes in there it might just be two step am I under arrest no am I free to go I've done it exactly that way and sometimes it's Boom, boom, you're free to go. Goodbye. It's nothing else to talk about. No backpack search, no nothing. I've done it where am I under arrest? No. Am I free to go? No. In that instance, it was, oh, well, then no, I'm not consenting to any searches and we'll just hang out. I've done that. Live to tell about it. No problem. Uh, Obviously, if you have enforcement officers who are being racist, terroristic, and, you know, they're just going to do whatever they're going to do. I would not encourage that. And they even have tips on that in the video that I mentioned. Uh, busted flex your rights. You can go to their website where you can just say, I'm, you know, you're doing do whatever you're going to do, searching my house or what have you, but I'm not consenting to this search. You don't have to say anything else. And they've had cases that alone where if they, they go through your car and ransack, do whatever they do and, you know, snatch your wallet out of your hand or whatever, your cell phone. I did not consent to this search. You get your attorney later on. You survive the encounter, right? And get through. That can be thrown out. So that's one that I've used. Uh, we've had guests on the pro- uh, program. Steve Silverman, that's his name. You go to the website, flexyourrights.org. They have multiple videos that, and they have one specifically that gives that scenario. And the second time he was a guest on the cows, we talked about this because he said they did not have a black person doing the scenario that I'm talking about. Am I free to go? Am I under arrest? Because he thought a black person might be more risky for them. But he said the same thing. It can totally be done. Just use your discretion. If you don't feel comfortable, don't do it. But yeah, I mean, that's as he stated in the clip, the law. Hey, if you're not under arrest, you are. There's no law that you have to give this and have to give this. I know some jurisdictions about uh, identification that can be different depending on where you are. But I mean, social security and you got to give up your Instagram. Like what law says that point that out, please. So before we even get to any, am I under arrest? Am I free to go? You can do all the other inspecting about laws later. Uh, Let's see other folks who 
dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Missy in South Carolina. They don't have good bike lanes or crosswalks there either. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is Missy. We bike too. Oh, yeah, we bike too, and it's very dangerous. You got to look look both ways at every single intersection and every cutout uh, just in case cars pop out. Um, good evening, Cal's listeners. Good evening, Gus. Uh, this is Miss D calling from the great South Carolina. This story that I'm sharing made national news. Um, it got SLED involved, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. A um, Well, first, first, September is National Life Insurance um, Awareness Month. So if you are interested in life insurance, this story is for you. Um, White people use life insurance to build their wealth. It's not hard work and merit and I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Somebody gave them an inheritance. And this is this story shows exactly what uh, what white people do to build wealth, generational wealth. So um, there was a man named Alex Murdaugh, uh, Murdaugh who... He hired a hitman to kill him or to assist him with suicide. So it's supposed to look like um, the guy named Curtis was supposed to shoot him in the head while Alex was changing his tire, but it didn't go off um, that way. The hitman, Curtis, he he created, um, he shot him, but it was only like a superficial wound, so he failed to kill kill the guy. Um, well, Alex, he was trying to um, kill himself so he could collect an insurance policy. But you know with life insurances or two years, there's a clause in there for suicide. Um, you have to be outside of the two-year mark. Um, otherwise, if you commit suicide before the two-year mark, then you don't, your beneficiary isn't able to collect on the insurance policy. Well, I'm, I'm assuming he was within the two-year mark. And he had a $10 million insurance policy. And so he arranged this entire scenario. The hitman was supposed to successfully kill him. So his son, uh, the beneficiary of the life insurance policy, could get $10 million and, you know, start his life and build a life for himself and be okay for the rest of his life. Um, but all of that went awry and nothing went according to plan. So um, there's this major investigation involving SLED and a lot of media attention surrounding this. Um, but what's interesting was Alex, he had an opioid addiction and just recently, um, maybe within the last couple of years, his wife and older son, they mysteriously passed away. And shortly after his wife and older son passed away, then Alex's father, who was like in his 80s, passed away. So this whole family could have been like collecting insurance policies. But for whatever reason, this man, um, maybe he was um, indebted, like had a lot of debt, or for whatever reason, he wanted to end his life. Um, yeah, it just went, it didn't go the way that he had planned. And and so it, it 
it just speaks to how, you know, if white people um, are in a tough spot and they're, they're trying to figure out what to do, how to ensure that their, their children are okay. Maybe, maybe they were involved in some kind of scam or um, maybe involved in criminal activity. Well, they've got all this life insurance policies, you know, multi-million dollar policies. And they're like, okay, we'll just commit suicide or we'll, we'll just mysteriously end up dead so we can collect on this money or the beneficiaries can collect on the money. But I just thought this was very interesting to share. Um, and with that, I will end my call. Much obliged, Miss C. Not meritocracy. That's just more uh, deception. And I did see that. I was thinking like, oh, did I miss that this week? I did see that. That was a big story. The uh, botched. And it's tons of those. That's like movie of the week on Lifetime. All kinds of that. I mean, that is like cliche in all kinds of white movies. We're going to kill the husband and collect the insurance policy or kill the wife. Um, I think Ashley Judd did. Du- uh, what is it called? Double indemnity. It's not double indemnity. I have to look and see. Ashley Judd's in one where that's it. She had a her husband took out a life insurance policy on her, so we'll fake it. Seems like she killed me, and then I get the life insurance policy on her and get some million. Matter of fact, all the way back to Boston. Now we've talked about Boston. I said I, when I think of Boston. She uh, Colin George says she thinks of uh, New Edition. I think of uh, Charles Stewart. Now he's not even a black person. But that's black people and racism, white supremacy, uh, where same thing, white man, not meritocracy and pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm hurting for cash. Hmm. My wife is pregnant. I got a life insurance policy on her. I know we'll kill her and blame it on a black person. And then I'll get the insurance policy. Yeah, that's what to do. And that's what he did. And then committed suicide once it seemed like plan got botched and they messed it up. But before it got botched, they went and messed, messed over all these black people and kicked in their door. Same policy and procedure and snatched some black people. You did it, didn't you? You shot her. And then, oh, man, her husband was just trying to get the life insurance policy. Man. Go well. Go back and root for the Celtics. Let's see. Speaking of, make sure I get that in. They mentioned Bill Russell about Boston make sure I get that in uh, he said of Boston he won 11 championships in Boston and he coached the team for one where he was player and coach and they still won a championship and beat the Lakers no less I think Will Chamberlain was on that team uh, and he was at the conference Bill Russell with Muhammad Ali to help him you know when they were practicing racism stripping him of his, of his title for Vietnam anti-Asian violence again Bill Russell said of Boston Boston itself was a flea market of racism. It had all varieties, old and new. The city had corrupt city hall crony racists, brick-throwing, send-them-back-to-Africa racists, and in the university areas, phony, radical, chick racists. Other than that, I like the city. I think Bill Russell uh, owns a property house here in the Seattle area. Victim of racism. Other folks who dialed in commentary to share proceed.
Hey, Gus, can I ask something until uh, somebody's ready to uh, talk? Victim in New Jersey, yes, sir. Yeah, so the gentleman who asked about the mandates. Um, so right now in New Jersey, there is no mandates. Um, I just left off of, uh, Eastern Avenue. That's in the uh, New Brunswick area. So right now, New Brunswick is, um, I guess, Rutgers University is celebrating their 3-0 and uh, um, start. Um, so... There's a lot of people out on Eastern Avenue, and we was just talking about mandates and masks. Nobody's wearing masks. So I walked in the establishment to get something to eat. I was the only person with a mask on. So as of right now, on the other side of the Hudson, New Jersey has not implemented um, any mandates. Uh, Friday when I was in New York City, um, I was asking about the mandates. Um, everybody was just kind of going on with their, you know, with their day. I looked in these restaurants when people was eating, nobody had masks. So I'm assuming that because they're vaccinated, they don't have to wear masks. But the thing with New York City that I'm struggling with, okay, you're, you're putting these mandates on restaurants, you're putting these mandates on movie theaters and gyms, but people are still on top of each other in, in public transit. So, you know, no mandate in the trains, the buses, the train stations where there are people that's coming in uh, very close proximity to each other. So I'm, I'm just trying to make sense of this. And also my job delivers to most of the New York City schools so my job is asking for vaccination cards. We have until the 24th. I have yet to present a vaccination card. I'm not. So, you know, who knows what my employment situation is going to be <laughs> in a few weeks. Um, you know, so, I mean, hey, you know, the other option is for me to just do routes in uh, New Jersey um, or street routes. But um, as I was delivering to the restaurants, none of the restaurants that I was delivering to asked me to present a uh, proof of uh, COVID vaccination. And so, yeah, so that's that's pretty much uh, it. And also, Gus, um, what you said about when police uh, um, pull you over and you say, I don't consent to a search. I've also used that uh I also used that when I was pulled over and the police officer proceeded to ask could they search my vehicle. I said no and I you know, I'm live I live to tell about it. The police officer didn't search um my vehicle. Bravo. Bravo. Again, you're not saying it like you have an army behind you or anything like that, because you do not. But, I mean, that is the law, <laughs> according to what white people have said. Obviously, we wouldn't have white supremacy racism if they followed the law. But if you think, you know, hey, this person doesn't seem like they're going to kill me in the next 30 seconds, at least right now. Hopefully there are other witnesses around. Hey, let's see if we can make this a legal encounter. At least get that on the record that you didn't consent. Then if they do anything else, it's on the record that you didn't consent. And that can be dealt with in court. That can even get the case dismissed in court later. So. 
important to at least say that on the record. And it's always dangerous, like they just, oh yeah, allowing them to say that's super dangerous, and they can plant stuff and all that. We've had uh, white enforcement officers on the program who've explained that for themselves why that is a dangerous practice to just oh yeah just consenting willy-nilly to searches of your property and residence and all the rest without a warrant no way that is too dangerous especially for black people victims of racism uh retired firefighter in florida he mentioned the haitian uh, immigrants uh, at the border in texas that was big news this week as well lots of things uh this is from the guardian.com not reading the whole thing, just a tidbit. It says authorities in the Texas town of Del Rio declared a local state of emergency on Friday after some 12,000 migrants, most from Haiti, gathered under and around a bridge on the border with Mexico. The influx has overwhelmed local officials, presented Joe Biden with a new challenge and cast a spotlight on the growing migration crisis triggered by the multiple and overlapping calamities which have beset Haiti. Most immigrants fly from Haiti to Ecuador, which does not require a visa for Haitian visitors before either trying to find work in Brazil or Chile or heading north, crossing the perilous jungles of the Darien Gap and onwards to Central America and Mexico. I will stop there. But as he was saying, like, that sounds all kinds of treacherous. Wow system of white supremacy and then to have you stacked up at the border waiting who knows how long uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up commentary to share before we wrap things up yeah we heard caller in Florida yes sir Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, I just had just uh, like maybe two or three things to share. Um, that that one segment where the uh, I think that was a black female that was speaking about the uh, the Harambe reference racism being practiced. Um, it, it it just seems like in my my view that the younger white people are I guess becoming more advanced in their um imagination how to practice white supremacy. Uh because like you mentioned, that incident or that news story that took place like maybe five or six years ago and just you know, when I just think about the numbers on that, they were those. Uh, I guess if they're college students now, they had to be like in the late part of middle school or early high school. But even then, they still are I consider to be experts at practicing uh, racism. Um, and I think she mentioned that it was all but one. Uh, got in contact with her or to so-called apologize. And the reason I say that is even though they do apologize, it's still, like you, you mentioned, they can still practice racism and you don't know how they are conducting themselves out of your presence around other white people. Um, so that's just something to be mindful about right there. Uh, 
the other segment about the broadband, the internet. I thought how white supremacy is dominant uh, in that area where the non-white people, uh, I guess Native American, have that particular area where they reside and they live, but they are in dire need of, uh, it seems like, Internet access or some type of resource to get information. Um, And I can see the system of white supremacy using that to practice racism against them. Uh, And I have one more where we have locally, like the, uh, the commissioner, well, one black person, black female resigned, and then a second one resigned. So a black victim of racism, black female, made a post on Facebook, because I know, which is interesting, uh, social media just came up not too long ago here in the call. Um, the news said that she threatened to drag D-R-A-G, one of the um, female commissioners, and smile for the mugshot or something like that. But they never arrested the, the uh, black person. So I don't know if that was in response to uh, some of the people resigning or what. But I know they've been having issues with racism, which is uh, typical in the system of white supremacy. But uh, it was something I found out earlier today. And they called this person a a local activist. So I'm not sure what's going to come about with that news story. But I just wanted to share those two things. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wacky. Don't go. I'd say, man, be very careful about social media, especially uh making comments that can be perceived to be threats on social media he could end up being a black identity extremist be careful uh, and just uh, to verify what he said now if these college students are you know practicing racism invoking the name of Harambe the gorilla this was indeed Gus's memory is not too bad uh, this was from May of 2016. So we're talking something that's more than five years ago. If they're college students now, they probably would have been like freshmen in high school, maybe even like middle schoolers, maybe when all this happened. So, I mean, are you serious? You're 13 years old and your understanding of racism is that sophisticated that you already know. Har- oh, yeah. Negras made us lose Harambe. From 2016, now I guess there might be reasons why they remember this. Maybe their parents were some of the critics. Uh, This report is from ABC News. It reads, some critics had called for criminal charges against the mother who was with the boy at the zoo for reckless endangerment. The boy suffered a concussion and some scrapes, but escaped serious injury. I am very sorry about the loss of this gorilla, but nothing about this situation rises to the level of criminal charge, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joseph Dieters said. Had she been in the bathroom smoking crack and let her kids run around the zoo, that'd be a different story. That's what most black mothers do. Sneak off to smoke uh, smoke crack and leave their children to run wild. That's what they said in Philadelphia. (laughs) 
let the mom, she was out smoking crack, and we had to come save her. Yes, yes. We will call it a broadcast uh, for Saturday. I will check tomorrow to see if they have masks on at uh, the Seahawks game. I bet they will not. Or at least maybe they'll start out, and then by the time, you know, they get lathered up for the second quarter, you know. Full-throated cheers. Go Russell Wilson. Much obliged for everyone's participation. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. We'll be here tomorrow for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need fully functioning brain computers to solve our problems. Uh, In addition to being sober, man, be super alert when you're out and about. There's so many crazy things happening. Be alert when you're trying to cross the street. Alert when you're trying to do anything else. Uh, Just be as mindful as you can. If someone is being hostile and violent, this is not a time for confrontation. Uh, If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. Uh, This is not a time to be going up and having verbal arguments and such with total strangers. All of that said, if you're driving, you are sober and buckled, doing all we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, then you don't have to make those decisions about giving up your Instagram account. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.